There he hey. is. <laughs> the most famous mustache on YouTube has arrived. <laughs> uh, are you recording already? Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> I didn't know you still recorded after I, I left the meeting. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I shaved it this morning and I was like, oh man, I uh, I accidentally used a one instead of a two. So it looks a little bit <laughs> So <laughs> still looks good, man. Still looks good. Yeah. I, I like, uh, I was doing these like podcast things before where I would do like an intro, you know, like a thing I'm like, you know, welcome to the Fars Up is by a podcast or whatever. But I feel like it's, it's much more natural because the kind of conversations I'm trying to have with my guests is a lot more like natural. Like I'm just literally, literally trying to have a conversation with my guests. And I figured like, if I just start the sucker up and just make sure the guest is okay with it, I'm like, yeah, just freaking record. And then all the, you know, the little silly human things that happen at the beginning are all sometimes very cool to keep too. Cause it's like, I don't know, like it, it's, it's good to show humanity in these conversations. I feel like, so I don't know. That's the thought process yeah, and behind it's it. Like I find that when I'm interviewing people, it's generally the, the goal of my channel is to, to get at like critical pieces of information. And mm -hmm. I would love to just interview people and just like shoot the shit and have a conversation with them because yeah. it's far more enjoyable. Um, yeah, it makes the, the conversation kind of stilted when you have an agenda. Whereas if you don't have an agenda and you let it kind of go everywhere, then you often end up with pieces of information that you, you know, wouldn't expect to get. They're kind of nice surprises. For sure. I agree 100 percent And I and I realized that when I was doing my like my earlier podcast I was doing when I had, you know, say Dave and I had uh Joe. Like one of one of those, I was like super planning ahead. I was like, okay, I need to, I need the interview to flow this way. I needed to go, you know, certain route. And then when I got to the conversation, I realized I'm like, okay, but like I'm naturally gravitating towards just having a conversation, and it felt a lot more natural. And like, and but I still didn't learn my lesson until like maybe like the fourth or fifth podcast in, where I would still put so much pressure on myself to try and like predict what the flow of the conversation was going to be. And then I said, you know what, just screw it. Just, I'm just going to sit down and I do have pointers. Like I literally have a, a Excel spreadsheet, you know, with your name on it. And then I have like 25 things that I might want to talk to you about, but mm -hmm. like the priority is still the conversation. So I still want to make sure I have a conversation with the human being, you know? Um, and we'll see, I mean, I'm still trying to get better at it. I feel like it takes time to practice, but yeah. Yeah. It evolves over time. And like, the thing is, I've kind of built a brand or brand around my channel and a set of expectations with it. Whereas you're mm. still, your channel's still pretty fresh, and you have like green fields. I got into a situation where I started my channel, and uh, it was very clear what I needed to do. So I mm. didn't, I didn't really have that chance to play around and experiment. Um, my channel just kind of, yeah, took off. Do you think it's? I mean, do you think it's too late for you to kind of like just start start voicing it the way you want to voice it? Like, do you feel like you're sort of in a corner in a way or, or do you wish like or? Yeah, no, that's that's an excellent question. No, I don't feel like I'm cornered. It's uh, everybody. There's so many different aspects to our personality. And uh, the channel gives me a chance to really push that analytical side of my personality. But mm. uh, if I did do something different, uh, more freewheeling, I'd probably just start a different channel. But this channel takes all of my time. So sure. I don't, there's, um, yeah, there's, to me, there's no motivation and no reason to um, mm. play around a lot. Now, there, one thing I would like to do is try to bring some other voices into the channel, maybe hire some other people to try to uh, add information because, you know, I do a video like every two weeks and they're super deep dive. And those deep dives that I do, there's often a couple of months of research that I put into it just constantly asking people questions, refining the script, et cetera. So um, yeah, it would be, 
I would like to increase the output, but it, it's it's difficult to find people with the full skill set to do that. And if they do have that skill set, they probably started their own YouTube channel. Mm. So. Yeah, that that was going to be one of my questions. Like, because th that's the one thing that really jumps out to me is that it's 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 an obvious labor of love. Like that's how I would describe your channel. It's an it's very obvious that you really are passionate about what you want to put together. And like, for example, I, I would say like pretty confidently that you are the voice when it comes to batteries on YouTube. You know, I even saw Sandy Monroe hit you up like a couple, uh, I think yesterday or two days ago when you released your Cybertruck video. It was like, hey, you know, do you, you want to come on and talk about this stuff? Which tells me that, dude, like you are freaking legit. Like there's like people listening to you that are legit themselves and they're looking at you as a resource. How does that feel? Is there pressure? Like how, what does that dynamic feel like? Um, well, for the first few months of the channel, there definitely was. You had imposter syndrome. You're like, <laughs> I'm just a guy with a YouTube channel. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing my best to scramble around and grab a uh, uh, piece of inf information I can and stitch them together in a way that's that's useful for people. But over time, you just you sort of get used to it. And rather than seeing, um, you start to see people as equals and mm. um, that we're all here trying to do the same thing, which is trying to get at useful pieces of information. So there's no reason to be intimidated. Um, some of the interviews I've done, people have told me, oh, you got to be careful. This is this is quite an honor to sit down and speak with somebody. It's like, it, it's not helpful because you really want to have um, a connection when you talk to them. But if you're walking around on stilts, mm. uh, it kind of kills the conversation. So it's best just to try to put those thoughts out of your head and um, just view them as human beings. So. Yeah, that's that's I resonate that with that statement so much because that's something I can say very confidently in the past I struggled with mightily. And part of this channel for me is to try my best to like intuitively, I know that everyone's a human being and intuitively, I know that, you know, like sometimes like this is probably a ridiculous example, but like sometimes like my wife and I, when we're hanging out, right, we do some of the weirdest, stupidest shit. Like I'm like, wow, this is like no one else is doing this. We, like we're just making noises running around the house, you know, doing like the silliest thing. But then when I started like talking to people, I'm like, wow, like, like people are very, uh, they're very unique in their own way. But I feel like we very rarely see it in person. And if we if we try to somehow put these folks in some sort of like almost like a pedestal that says these people are like an exemplary version of what this looks like, I think it's a disservice to that person because that person is ultimately a human being, you know, and they have so much complexity behind them. And part of this channel for me is, is to really practice that side of me that says, I just want to connect with people on a human to human level. Like it doesn't really matter what, you know, of course you're obviously an accomplished person and everybody else on my channel, you know, th very fortunately for me, I've been able to talk to very accomplished people, but like what I'm starting to learn is like, we're just people, man. Like we're just people, we're just human beings. And, and the more time we spend really um, talking to each other in that sense or trying our best to really make that human connection, I think is going to be very helpful. Because right now, like if, if I think about the media landscape and everything else that's going on out there, like everything is so, I don't know, I'm still trying to think about it, but everything feels so tight. It feels so like in, inhuman in a way, like that, that humanity doesn't seem to exist. And yeah, I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that because like, for, I think about that a lot, man. Like that's been taking a lot of my, a lot of my mental bandwidth lately, especially ever since I quit Tesla and I have all this freaking time now, like that's where my head's constantly going towards. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, if you have first it. off, if, if you're talking to somebody and they want to be put on a pedestal, that's not the type of person you want to be. <laughs> right. So, and it, uh, yeah. 
getting to your point, and we are kind of like an Instagram, Facebook world where uh, you put uh, this version of yourself out um, and it's not, it's marketing more than it is sharing things about yourself. So yeah. now, now there's limits to that. You don't want to tell um, the answers. There's, there's two extremes. One being really uptight and um, not feeling like you can share anything. And the other is just uh, too much information. Mm. <laughs> so it's, it's about finding that balance in between. And um, yeah, so that's, that's been a journey with my channel. Like I was at the very beginning of my channel, I was trying too hard to be funny, too hard to entertain people. Um, so it's kind of like, um, so there's who you are as a person, your set of, uh, characteristics, and then there's, um, the market for the information that you're putting out. So, uh, it's when you have a YouTube channel, you have to find a balance between those two. You have to like, all right, I'm going to share a certain portion of myself and be as genuine as possible and make sure that aligns with what people are interested in. So it's, uh, it's a really complex dynamic and it's constantly evolving. So yeah, mm. when I first started the channel, I was trying too hard to be funny. And then I realized actually people just want um, analysis. I don't need to exaggerate. I don't need to say funny things. The most important thing for me to do is to be as honest as possible about the information that I'm gathering to say, all right, I'm not so certain about this. This is speculation. And just so uh, people know how to organize what I'm giving them, whether they can treat it as gospel or whether they um, uh, give them some levity to let, you know, their brain run wild a little bit, because that's, you know, I want to give information, but I don't want to uh, constrain people's thinking. I want people to use the information I put out there as a launching pad for them to explore their own ideas. Got it. Yeah. And that's, so it's really, you're, you're bringing a lot of value to, to people when you do that. Cause if, you know, from that perspective, it sounds like you're really prioritizing being able to be as, as, um, I don't know if efficient is the right word, but being as impactful as possible with the information that you're trying to bring forward. Right. And that seems like, that is obviously like the most valuable thing you can do. And how, how hard was it? And that's what I'm trying to figure out. Like if I, if I were to like, like draw a parallel, like I have no freaking, I still have no freaking idea what this thing is. Like I'm still like experimenting, right? So how, how, um, like how hard was it to come to that realization? How comfortable are you with that realization? Um, how do you keep yourself motivated knowing that? Like how, what kind of walk me through the, through the thought process there a little bit? The thought process of, could you specify? Sorry, I, I... Yeah, no, no problem. It's kind of a broad question. So you talked about like how, how you kind of figured out that uh, really what people almost are looking for from you is, you know, bringing that value. So like how, was that a hard adjustment? Did it come freely? You know, like kind of, how do you keep yourself? Yeah. Can I put me at ease when I found worked out that, oh, actually, I don't have to um, be an organ grinder monkey. <laughs> Just, mm. Um, uh, you know, trying to entertain people. That's, you know, mm -hmm. there are other channels out there for that. That's not what I'm here to do. So it, it actually relaxed me quite a bit. It's like, okay, um, this is, this is, I know what people's expectations are of me. And, um, so that makes my life easier. Um, yeah. And it's, as I said, there's so many different aspects of your personality what what do you show people? What do you share? You have a certain amount of time that you spend with people as a YouTube creator, putting your content out there. Uh, what do you want it to be? And I'm really happy with the the content that I put out. That's and awesome. There's a few other questions that you put in there. 
how do I keep motivated? Well, for me, it's oh man, what's the best way to put this? I like organizing information. Like mm -hmm. when I go and I start researching a topic, it's just a mess. I'll go like the closest thing I can find to what I do on my channel is review papers. Like for instance, in science, there's a topic and there'll be like, you know, dozens of research papers written on it. And then at some point somebody comes along and they do a meta analysis and they take all that information that combined it into some uh, like a useful narrative. So quite often when I'm looking at, at the pieces of information out there on a certain topic, it's all fragmented and it's like, all right, this is, and there's certain pieces of the, of the truth all over the place. Um, and it's just confusing. And you can easily go down a goat track and mislead yourself if, if you pick up on a certain piece of information. And of course, the way search results work, et cetera, YouTube, what they do is if they find something that interests you, they keep feeding it to you. So you have to mm -hmm. kind of, um, yeah, kind of break out of that. Look at all the pieces of information and then pull it together. And I just feel I get a, a lot of satisfaction out of that is just organizing a series of thoughts into something coherent. Because so often you see, especially now when things are so polarized, people will look at any topic and they'll either want to paint it as good or evil, or they'll want to, um, you know, somehow create some sort of monopoly on the truth. When reality is a lot more interesting, things are constantly evolving. And there's multiple sides to everything. So uh, that's what I try to put into the videos is everything at once. So um, I guess try to reduce factions and focus on what's important. That's great. And, and it's very clear that, that you're doing that. And I think, and I think what that also speaks to, because the point you made there, which I, I agree with 100%, is that your channel is very, very technical, but it's also very easy to understand. And that's obviously... Uh, you're, you're a big reason for that, right? But I also think there is a uh, something that's going on in society or like say the public where I think people are way smarter and way deeper than we give them credit for, like the general population. And they seek out, they want to seek out that technical knowledge. They want to seek out that deep dive, you know? And I think that's why your channel has been so successful is because there's like an unmet market out there of people that are way smarter and way deeper than we give them credit for, especially how like mass media and these institutions sort of like, like to just cater to the, you know, they want to simplify and, and always try to like cater to the, you know, lowest common denominator in a way, you know, whatever that is. But I think that lowest common denominator is way smarter and way deeper than people think. And there was a tweet that, that um, you copied uh, a few days ago, I think like two weeks ago. And it was, um, and I think it directly talks to this, uh, Pope of Muscanity, shout out to Pope of Muscanity, craziest name out there, in my opinion. Uh, so he said, pick any subject that you know a lot about, then read on that subject through the eyes of the media. Then you will see how biased and untruthful the media is about the one thing you know very well, then extrapolate that level of bias to the other subjects you know little about. And then you said tweet of the decade. And the, the way I think about that is that, you tell me if I'm thinking about this incorrectly, but the reason why you said that, I think, is because you're kind of talking to the fact that people are seeking that reality, right? People are constantly seeking that reality, but it doesn't seem to be out there. And, and that is what you're trying to do from your, and you obviously talked about it. Like, can you draw a parallel between those two things? Like what the work you're doing and the fact that there is a lot of people out there that are seeking that level of detail? Like, do you think that's the case? Yeah. Uh, man, where to start on this? Because <laughs> um, 
it's a deep part of my personality. Like, cause when I was about, let's see here, 20, 21 years old, it, it like everything that we're seeing now is an extension of things that have roots 30 or 40 years ago. Everything that we're seeing is just um, uh, the way things were 20 or 30 years ago on steroids. Like there, there's all these polarization and these different, um, there's siloing, siloing that was building and people like to blame it on uh, social media, et cetera. But it, it was all there before it was growing. It's just, I think social media just threw some fuel on the fire and put it right in people's faces. Um, and I think it's very much driven by the media and 24 hour news where they're just looking for content. They're looking to get people whipped up. So, um, Overall, I think you make a good point. Okay. Because it's really okay. the media that's polarizing people. And if you just get people to sit people down in a room and talk, I don't, um, you can often find common ground if those people aren't completely captured by the, that media narrative. People, if people are, you know, if they put too much weight and too much stock in what they've picked up off television, then it's, it's hard to reach them. Um, but yeah, and it's, as far as why I said it was tweet of the decade, uh, it's, I think it illustrates um, the times we live in so much is, uh, there's a lot of confusion. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, uh, my brain, brain's going 10 different directions. No, no problem. Shuts down. So yeah, what I was saying about, um, you know, I was 21 years old, it felt like there was no truth. Um, I felt like everybody was confused. And this was back in the year 2000. It's like, everybody's treating opinion as fact, in fact, as opinion. So I want to go out there, out in the world, and I want to find out what reality is and what truth is and just try to, you know, shake out of this. Whatever this is, It's it doesn't seem... Um, Every, everybody seems confused. So that's part of the reason why I went to New Zealand, like back in 2003, was, all right, I'm going to completely throw my culture out the door, and I'm going to go to another culture and test all of the assumptions that are in my culture. Does that make sense? It's kind yeah. of like a, a particle collider where they smash two atoms together, <laughs> all the bits fly apart. And then after you've smashed it, uh, you can take all those pieces and you can get a better understanding of how it works. So I guess I was uh, looking to smash myself um, my understanding of reality, just smash it to pieces and then reassemble it and hopefully create something better. And um, so my my channel isn't my first go at this. My <laughs> The first time I um, um, tried to get to the root of um, sort of what's true um, occurred when I went to New Zealand. It was really effective. I feel like I learned so much about geopolitics, culture, et cetera. It was a really important growth experience. And it took years to um, go through that process. And yeah, so uh, the channel is just an extension of that part of my personality where it's, there's all the information that you see out there in the news, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, et cetera, on batteries. All they're doing is they're taking the marketing material and they're regurgitating it and getting people whipped up about it. And then that give and that overhypes things. And then like a year or two later, then they start asking a question, huh, why aren't these, why isn't this working out, et cetera. Just um, they're creating a market from for their own product. Uh, mm -hmm. 
it doesn't serve their interest to give you useful and valuable information. Because if you get useful and valuable information, you really don't need to revisit that topic for another six months or a year. Um, if you just give them little pieces of information that are slightly inaccurate, people are constantly coming back to the table for more information because they don't understand. If you understand something, you really don't need to watch the news every day. That's just variations on the theme that you already understand. There's the trend, and then there's um, you know the variations that uh, work around that trend. I'm really rambling now. Um, no, you're good, dude. No, I'm 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 following you 100. I think. I think, and I think that's why YouTube is as successful as it is, especially, you know, the, the YouTube that sort of surrounds the Tesla community and like technology and other things like that, that's sort of, uh, coming out of there. It's like, it's the, it's that craving for that sort of information. It's the craving for the reality. Um, the one thing I did want to ask you though, you talked about New Zealand and sort of moving to New Zealand to sort of, again, like that you, you hydrogen collided yourself <laughs> by moving to, to New Zealand. What did you find? What, what were in those particles? What are, what are the things that really stick out the most from that experience? Oh, man, I don't know. It's uh, how to summarize rewiring your entire brain. <laughs> um, because that was my goal is uh, yeah. to smash myself to pieces and then um, kind of reassemble it. I don't know if I can create a, a quick answer for that. No uh, problem. It's kind of like when you, somebody asks you about the favorite part of being American. It's like, oh, oh my God, well, this is my entire experience, my entire life, my entire reality. Um, you can't just give like a little piece of information. It's a whole summary of experiences. Like for instance, uh, Christmas, like I'm used to here in Ohio, you have Christmas, it's snowing, you have a Christmas tree. You go down there and it's a barbecue out in the sunshine. <laughs> Christmas is in the middle of summer. Which so, one do you prefer? <laughs> the thing is you enjoy both. And it's mm. like, um, I really, the like a North American Christmas, um, has deeper roots in me. So I, I feel a greater affinity to it, but it sure, sure as hell is nice to go outside and have a sausage on Christmas day. <laughs> but the funny thing is people still have Christmas trees up and things like that. It's just humans are weird. Uh, yeah. So that they, I, I imagine at some point people who are living on that side of the world are eventually going to ditch the old Christmas tra traditions with the Christmas tree, develop yeah. Christmas traditions with some sort of other different type of plant. It's just, you know, uh, a few hundred years away. Yeah. The, the one thing that sticks out to me moving down to uh, Austin, Texas is, you know, Christmas here is warm. You know, like the, I think the first year we were here, the first winter we were here, it was like in the 50s, you know, Fahrenheit 55. But this past Christmas, if I remember correctly, it was like 75 and sunny. And there's like people walking it out in shorts and a T-shirt and a Santa hat. I'm like, this is weird. Like, this is freaking weird. I don't know what to make out of this. And you have this gigantic, like, 20-foot Tesla in someone's yard, you know, in the neighborhood. And it's, like, literally sunny outside. There's people walking in their shorts and, like, running in there. I'm like, dude, this is, like, this is tripping me out. Like, it does not compute. Like, that's the kind of, like, vibe I'm getting. Because, you know, Christmas I experienced, you know, most of my time growing up was in Pennsylvania. You know, and so Pennsylvania gets snow, obviously. And, you know, they it, you get that typical, you know, what you think of Christmas, you know, white Christmas, Santa's coming down your chimney and there's snow outside, blah, blah, blah. Then you go out, you know, to, with family, you're bundled up, you get in the car, you know, you go to family and whatever. So it, it was, it was a big culture shock for me. Um, or not a, yeah, I, I guess it was a culture shock technically, cause it's, you know, it's a different way that they're handling it down here. 
Um, how, uh, how's your move back going? So you mentioned coming back to the U.S. from, from New Zealand. How's that move going so far? It's been a, a couple months now, I guess. How long has yeah. it been? Well, there's a lot to, um, I'm still, like, it only takes me a few days to kind of readjust to the culture here. Um, mm. Because it is, I do have to switch gears in my brain. Because there's, you know, there's a bit more sarcasm here and people are a bit more open than the uh. United States. But I, I guess that's going back to your question about what did I learn in New Zealand is that like mm -hmm. every culture kind of has an internal logic. Every, <clears throat> just like a, yeah, a person has their own way of rationalizing their view, point of view on life. And uh, the culture is just like a giant brain. And I think all of us are, uh, I guess the way I see people is, yeah, we're individuals, but we're also nodes in this massive network. And, mm -hmm. you know, you go to different cultures, different nations, and it's just, those are like separate brains in the network. Um, or, sorry, yeah, separate brains with different sets of rules. Um, what was your question again? No, my question was moving back to the United States. How, yeah, how, how's that going? Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, adjusted in terms of culture-wise, that takes a few days. And then, uh, well, I got my new house and now okay. uh, it's completely empty. And I had, I came here with nothing except for my bags. So it's <laughs> like, I, there's, there's so much stuff that I've had to order. I filled up van loads mm -hmm. of cardboard, just, you know, just getting the basics for the house. So I'm, I'm getting there. Um, mm -hmm. I think I've been saying this for a couple more, about a month now that in the next few weeks, I think I'll have everything sorted out, but you know, I just, you know, the, the snow's melted. And now I can see the yard is all torn up from the squirrels. <laughs> I have to get some grass cover and things. Like There's always something every day that comes up. It's like, God, like when I was in New Zealand, I was, I had things, I was a well-oiled machine. Like I'd wake up every day, you know, put in 12 hours. There's no other distractions, nothing to uh, get in the way of making videos. And now that I'm back here, I have a house to look after. There's family nearby. And uh, which is great. It creates a bit more more balance in my life because I was um, living like a monk for a couple of years there, just 100 percent focused. And it wasn't wasn't really healthy, but um, this makes it more more sustainable. So, Gotcha. And, and that was one thing I I wanted to talk to you about, too. So you, you mentioned there was an interview you did with um, intercalation nation or something. First of all, I had to. That's right. I had to look up that word. I had no idea what the frick that meant. So I had to look that up. Um, but one of the things you said in that interview was that um, the uh, it almost appears like balance. Um, you were looking for balance. You were looking for leisure because you just mentioned kind of looking. You were living like a monk, like a monk, you know, just 100 percent of focus on the thing. How hard? And, and I guess let me give you some context from my end is that I find myself in that situation often as well, where like, I, I, I hyper focus on things. Right. And then I have my wife sort of be like reminding me because thank God I have her. She's like, yo, present. Hello. I'm, I'm here. You have other stuff too that you have to, you can worry about. Don't forget to have fun. Don't forget to hang out with people. Right. Is that, so that hyper focus thing, is that something that comes naturally to you? And is it something that you have to be mindful about to try and break away from it? Like how, how do you, you know, how do you live with that sort of hyper focus? Is it, can you not help it? You love it? Okay. Uh, it's, it's, um, I feel like my body gets in the way and life gets in the way of like focus. Cause it's like, you know, you have to eat, et cetera. And all this other stuff. It's like, if I could, I would just hook up, um, up an IV and just focus 100% of the time. Just wow. things. I think I'm a little bit on the spectrum 
but not so much on the spectrum that I can actually share and explain things <laughs> and uh, communicate fairly well. So, uh, yeah, no, I, um, I love losing myself in things and completely losing track of time. And if I could, I wish I could live, you know, 500, a thousand years, because I feel like I've barely scratched the surface on so many things. There's so many, um, I'm interested in everything. So, uh, and I can tell your level of curiosity, you, you're probably the same where you could just, it doesn't matter how long you lived, you could find things that you're interested in to pursue and uh, expand mm-hmm. your brain. It's like every day there's something I find, I go, oh, that's cool. That's interesting. Aha. Mm-hmm. And I love that feeling. And uh, yeah, focus is just kind of a, you know, a useful tool if you want to learn more quickly. So Yeah. No, I, I definitely can can connect with that. Do you do you ever experience burnout? Oh yeah, that's uh, it's con- some some. I'm very aware of burnout because I've I've burned myself out pretty uh, pretty severely in the past. But I can tell when it's creeping in, and I can tell what's going on with my mental conversation. And um, use there's mechanisms that you can you know. Uh, tweaking my internal conversation to deal with that and making sure that I do take steps to make sure that it does the burnout doesn't become all consuming. Cause I was writing a line there for, I don't know, you know, about 18 months where I was just pushing right up to the line of burnout. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, it, it's not like it's going to cause me to quit the channel or something. Cause I, I understand what's going on with burnout. Uh, burnout's just not just a mental thing. It's a physical thing. It's this uh, dynamic between your body and your brain. And it, as long as you're looking after your body and you're keeping track of your internal conversation and making sure that you don't give up too much of yourself, because if you have a YouTube channel, the people, um, and I mean this in a loving way, they can consume you. They will take everything that you have to give. And it's, well, you have to set some boundaries for yourself. It's kind of like what they say is, you know, parents, you have to look after yourself first so that you can look after your kids. Mm. And um, I don't mean that to sound as um, not patronizing. What's the word? No, not at all. No, I mean, mean, it it makes perfect sense. You know, it it makes perfect sense. It's almost like, I wonder how often, you know, I sometimes wonder if people have sort of asked themselves honestly what their, like, like what their limit of burnout is. And I think people very obviously have different limits, right? Like, you know, your, your limit's probably way higher than the average, but I'm sure there's people out there like an Elon Musk who doesn't appear to have a burnout limit, or he just, he just lives burned out his entire life. Like I still, to this point, I don't understand how he's able to do what he does at, at such a high level. You know, there, there's different levels, but I think I'm curious, like how many people have honestly sit down and, and answer that question honestly to themselves is like, Hey, what is my limit of burnout? Like, am I just living burnt out? Cause I, I saw this quite often when I was, you know, in my career is that I would see, you can just literally tell, you can look at someone, their eyes are red, you know, they're, you can just, they haven't slept. They have, you know, 800 milligrams of coffee in their blood or of caffeine in their blood. And they're, you know, they might be working very well and very fast, but you can just tell that they're burnt out. And and this sort of discussion too, when I, when I spoke to Stephen Mark Ryan uh, a few weeks ago, uh, and I was talking to him about, you know, he, he mentioned that he's on the spectrum and that, you know, one of the things that he learned about himself early on is that he was burnt out all the time, but he didn't recognize that was, that was what it was. And then after, after sort of finding himself, he figured out, okay, so like I have to tailor my life so that 
I don't, I'm not always burnt out. So I can actually live life to the fullest and be as efficient as possible with my time and energy. And I'm wondering if not enough people are asking themselves that question or, or the society not even allow people to ask themselves that question because they don't have the time to sit down and figure out if they're actually burnt out or not. Um, you know, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but that's, I've been thinking about burnout in that context. Yeah, there's, um, it depends on the person. I think a lot of people, um, the reason why they get burnt out is because they don't enjoy what they're doing. Have you ever heard of mm. bullshit jobs? Oh yeah, of course. Okay. Well, it's, yeah, something like a ridiculous number of the jobs out there. There's just, it's kind of like, um, uh, I'm trying, I, that's not, I just thought of an example, but it's not uh, necessarily politically correct. Um, I don't care if you want to say it. (laughs) Back in World War II, what they would have like to break the souls of people like the Jewish people when they're in concentration camps Mm -hmm. is they would have them move bags of salt back and forth for no reason whatsoever. And Mm -hmm. it was a special kind of torture making somebody do something for no reason whatsoever. And that's what I see going on with so many people today. It's just people are being wasted. And that, that's one of the main reasons I like Tesla so much is because it's um, he's Elon's letting people do things that create value. And I think if you're doing something that creates value, it's re- it's hard to get burnt out. You can work those 80 hours a week like I was working and push it right up to the edge. And it's like you can get so much done, but you still wake up every day. Everything resets and you're ready to go again because it's like you have a goal. Um, now, the issue with uh, you can get into if you're say on the spectrum or, um, uh, is you can start doing damage to your body because like, I, like me, when my mind takes over and I start focusing on something, everything else goes out the window and I ignore all the aches, pains, whatever, whatever's going on in my body. I just, you know, you just power right through it. Um, a lot of people, you know, they'll take those cues from their bodies and they'll pay attention and they'll take a break, et cetera. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I can't really say I get burnout, um, mentally from the work that I do building my videos. It's very much a physical thing. Um, however, one thing that does wear you down is interacting too much on social media. Because that gets gets into emotional parts of things, but you know somebody else might be different. They might get um, burnout from doing the the technical work and doing the you know it might provide them some escape talking to people on Twitter and having debates and things like that. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think overall, I think humans are greatly underutilized. I think the reason why you see so many people. Uh, spending so much leisure time watching TV, et cetera, is because they're just trying to, uh, it's like an opiate. Uh, you're yeah. trying to avoid, um, uh, you, you're just trying to shut off your brain because the rest of the time, it's just kind of, uh, people lead, most people lead pretty difficult lives. Uh, on the surface, things look okay, but there's, there's, everybody's going through some sort of struggle. Yeah, for sure. I, I that's a, such a great point. I think the fulfillment from what you do, I agree a hundred percent with what you said is it's such a big contributing factor to, to burnout. And where my head went to immediately after you said that is okay. So like, how do we fix that? Right? So, so how do we, you almost have to get rid of the bullshit jobs and, and you have to have an environment where people do what's most rewarding to them. 
right? What's what's most fulfilling to them? Um, and then the question then comes up of, okay, is that actually bringing value to society or not? But should that even be a question, right? Like like how, and, and where does the Tesla bot fall into that equation, right? That, that's, and then my head went there. It's like, okay, so what step one is, Solve the bullshit jobs that that you know might bring value. Well, let me let me go back and ask this question first. Do you think those bullshit jobs actually bring value? Oh no, that's why they're bullshit jobs. Okay, it's yeah, you're not actually creating value for society. It's just somebody in some bureaucracy somewhere wants to have uh, to build some sort of power power structure, and but yeah. sit themselves on top of it, and they they run around um, making sure people are working all day, but not checking if they're working on the right things or right value for people. It's just, um, we've gotten to the point where our, all of our institutions, and you're seeing this the past 20 years with all the, the quagmires that we've been in globally, is that um, our institutions are severely dysfunctional. I mean, you look at uh, the second Iraq war, um, the, the great financial crisis, uh, COVID, all these things were terribly mismanaged, easily predictable. And um, what they did, the, end, the net result of those things is uh, more bureaucracy, um, larger bureaucracy, and um, poor quality thinking. It doesn't seem like we're really learning our lessons from these things. And mm -hmm. uh, if, if your institutions are healthy, uh, they take lessons, they learn, they adapt, and I don't know. It's every so often humans need to hit the reset switch. Um, and you can only hope that it's uh, happens as peacefully as possible. <laughs> and um, yeah. Yeah. And which like, for instance, the U S have you uh, ever, ever heard of the fourth turning? The fourth turning. No. First time I heard about that. What it says, there's this theory that like the United States, Every 80 years, it has to reinvent itself. It readapts and it changes as time goes on. So you have from like the Civil War, uh, no, sorry, the uh, founding of the country to the Civil War, which is about 80 years. And then uh, the Civil War to like uh, 1945, et cetera, that was another 80 years. And now, well, we're 80 years after World War II. And each of those things, there was great turmoil in society and everything, you know, the systems of uh, government just failed to adapt and work properly. And so we're just, we're due for that again now where there's a lot of cataclysm and it's a tumultuous time, but hopefully we'll take all, all the dysfunction that's happening now and we're, we're find a solution to it and we'll get society working again. So and I think sure. that's what's driving a lot of the polarization is that people are like, just so frustrated and uh, they know things are wrong, so they want to attack something or somebody. And yeah. That uh, eventually where that leads is uh, war, um, riots, et cetera, things like that. And I feel like we're just, we're obviously right in the middle of that right now. But it has to end at some point. And we can just only hope that um, we have the bright lights and the bright minds or society as a whole um, develops an idea of what it wants and how things should be. And hopefully we're so far America's, you know, three times we've had this happen and we've redirected ourselves in a positive direction. So I'm hopeful that, you know, 10 years from now, we're, it'll be like a new 1950s where we're just cranking along and everything, just like everybody's pulling the same direction. Cause right now it seems like people are pulling different directions and our institutions don't work. So 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, the thing that came to mind when you talked about that. Thank you for explaining that, by the way, I have never heard that term, but it, I just, yeah. The microphone is over on the edge of the desk. Okay. (laughs) What say that one more time. Can you hear me? All right. Yeah. I can hear you just fine. Yeah. If I move the microphone over here. Oh, that's better now. Yeah. (laughs) That's way better. (laughs) Yeah. I could hear you just fine before too. Like, like, I don't think the the vocal quality was bad at all. It's just, uh, yeah, it it sounds better now. Um, that's funny. (laughs) I can't tell you how many times do like, there's something like in my setup. Like, I don't even know there's something wrong in my setup right now. I have no idea what it is. And I always discover it. Like after I'm done, I'm like, shit, I forgot about this thing. Um, but no, you're fine. Um, yeah, that, so that, that, that helps a lot because it does feel like, it does feel like we're on the cusp of something like, like the last, you know, and I was talking to this with, um, I forget who it was. It may have been one of my friends that if I think about my lifetime, you know, there's been, there's been quite a bit of, obviously in the past, you know, we've had a lot of major events that have happened. But if I think about from the time when I started realizing that things were happening around the world, so say like 12, 13 years old, I'm like, oh, I'm aware now. I'm not just a, I'm a teenager. I have to pay attention to what's going on a little bit. You when, know? When, when did you first, sorry, I'm taking this off side, side Please. Track. When did you yeah. first start realizing that there's your thoughts and then you can kind of watch your thoughts? Do you remember like a specific instance of that happening? Oh, or shit, do you remember a- what age you were? Because I remember a specific instance where I was like, oh, there's my thoughts and then my ability to watch my thoughts. And there's actually, you know, being aware of yourself. Dude, honestly, like that for me probably came really late to be completely honest. Cause I was so, I was so, um, lost in my thoughts that I didn't even become aware of my thoughts. If that makes any sense. Like I was in the thoughts. Oh, you, you know what I'm talking about then? And it's, yeah. it's, it's hard to describe, but all of a sudden you become yeah. self-aware and it's like, Oh, um, it's kind of like that Monty Python skit where, uh, you don't d- develop a soul, uh, well, you don't have a soul ab initio, but it, it comes about through a process of <laughs> introspection and uh, yeah, and it's like, uh, yeah, for me it was, I think I was probably about 11 or 12. I was like, okay, Whoa, hold on a second. Like, um, I can actually track my own thoughts and, uh, I can mold the way that my brain works. But anyhow, mm. you were, you were, you were asking a question. I butted in there. No, no, you're fine. You're fine. I honestly can't remember. I can't remember what that happened, but I, it probably happened late, but I can't remember when, um, I almost want to say it's happened more recently to my, I'm 35 now. It probably happened honestly in my freaking thirties, to be completely honest. Like I was just like freaking navigating the world, like a lost, like, like a lost, like thought brain thing. That's just kind of following where my head's going with completely unaware that I, Hey, like you should probably observe your thoughts and see. It's so hard to explain, man. It's weird. But like, yeah, well, there's yeah. I had a professor and he's, uh, because I was, he's like, you're like a fireball. You just shoot off towards things and everything just mm-hmm. gets blanked out. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you ought to sit back and think about these things. And I was like, oh yeah. Cause like when I was in university, I developed friendships with all my professors. I didn't just, um, you know, go to class, walk away. I, you know, after class, I'd go talk to them because, mm-hmm. you know, i I like picking people's brains and, mm-hmm. um, for some reason I've been never been really intimidated by people that are, uh, super intelligent. Um, yeah, because so, I, I, I don't know. That, that's a great strength to have though. And I feel like if that, if that's a skill, that's almost like a skill in some way, I think that it might come naturally to some people, but mm-hmm. I do think that's how you build a great knowledge base. Like how else do you <laughs> build a great knowledge base unless you're willing to talk 
to those very smart people that, you know, maybe, maybe a lot of people might feel, um, like you said, you know, they might feel intimidated or they might feel like lesser in some way. And it kind of goes back to our initial conversation around just like just seeing people as human beings as, and as equals, regardless of sort of what the, you know, even though they might have very valuable information, they're still people first or humans first. I think I think that's a skill on its own. And and perhaps for somebody like you, it may have been like, was it natural for you to 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 build that skill set or or did you have to work at it? Like how was how did you arrive to that to that point where you're just not afraid to talk to anybody? I think it was part of the way that I was raised because we were just, um, we were pushed out the door every day to go play outside. And, um, there was no limits on what we could do. We could cuss. We could like, mom's like, as long as you don't cuss in front of like a uh, company and things like that, you can say whatever you want. It's just mm -hmm. like, there was not a whole lot of rules. And I lived kind of like, I was very working class. So the, the house was kind of crappy. We didn't have to worry about beating things up in the garage or whatever. And there wasn't a whole lot of supervision. So mm -hmm. um, I was constantly exploring things, building things, tearing things apart, um, like just running experiments, like pouring gasoline down the sidewalk and lighting it on fire. And wow. Like, <laughs> oh, don't get too close to that. So, Dude. Um, yeah, it was just my curiosity was always leading. And then part of it was just part of my personality. So when I... Um, when I see like somebody who really knows their stuff, uh, they couldn't have gotten there with a certain amount of curiosity. Now that varies from person to person. Some people like being part of an educational hierarchy, uh, to like, you know, I don't know, to feel like they're valuable as a human being. Yeah. Um, but most of them are just, they're curious people. and. When I see a curious person, I see sort of a kindred soul. And it's like, well, no, I, I can I automatically feel comfortable around that person because we obviously have the same goals. So I don't I don't mind pestering them, asking questions, et cetera. So Yeah. I can connect with that a lot because that that was sort of I think for me, I learned how to do that. I think initially I was intimidated. I think we talked about it at the beginning, but like I was, I did have a sort of like you know, this person is probably too busy for me. This person, I'm going to sound like an idiot talking to that person because I don't know what I'm talking about. But the one thing that I started to find, and, and, and so where I where I learned the skill is it was before Tesla. I was at this company called Philips Pet Food and Supplies, and they distributed pet food and supplies in the United States. And I was so lucky to be in that time, at that company at the time, because I graduated uh, Penn State. You went to Ohio State, right? I went to Wright State University. Oh, Wright State. Okay. But you're yeah. from Ohio. Okay. Okay. Um, I was going to talk shit on Ohio State, but that's fine. We'll do that. We'll do that some other time. Uh, maybe we're somebody else. You, you, I, I think you were uh, thinking of the conversation you had where I told you I got arrested at Ohio that's State. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, can we talk about that? <laughs> what happened there? That what was, happened there? That was just uh, underage drinking. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, I went, I was like 17 and I had some friends who were a little bit old. I was always hanging out with people that were older than me. So I mm -hmm. showed up and I was like, there was like tens of thousands in the peat, people in the street meandering around. I was like, well, I can walk around with a beer. What are the odds that I'm going to get busted? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, my parents had to come uh, uh, drive from my hometown, which is about two hours away and pick me up at like 2 a.m. Oh, at the police station in Columbus. So um, boy, yeah. And one thing that we're, sorry, we're kind of, dancing around is we've hit on things about uh, how society is confused, et cetera, and things don't feel right at the moment. Mm. <clears throat> Education, hierarchies, 
And I think um, we can probably dip back in, dip back into that if you want to. Because yeah, I for sure. Views on that. Yeah. yeah the, way, the way that we do our education system is our our uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not arcane. Um, archaic. Yeah, it's really archaic. It's it was our whole education system was designed for um, like the industrial revolution, just creating these uh, good citizens who can you know uh, create widgets and things like that. But we've evolved to the place where now we're going to have robots to do all that widget work for us. So we need people that are able to think creatively and think about what's the possible solution space and ask the right questions. Um, and move away from this, just or like do what you're told, be intimidated by these people at the top of the hierarchy. So a lot of the foundation there, just fixing the way things are, is uh, getting rid of the the way that we currently school people. And Elon Musk sees this. He's He started a school. You probably know this. He started a school for his kids. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm seeing more and more people doing homeschooling, uh, realizing if you do it right, you're not going to have kids that are socially dysfunctional. And the reason is because the, the school systems are failing us. They don't um, they don't teach the right things. So that's part of it. And there's also we see there's a big uh, I'm not like a <clears throat> big into crypto and big into Bitcoin. I, I follow it. But one of the key points about Bitcoin and crypto is that if you can mess around with our monetary system, just willy nilly, like we have the Federal Reserve and such like that. Um, um, that's basically manipulating the reality that all of us share. And if you replace that with something that's can't be messed around with, I think it does a lot to increase the trust in society mm-hmm. and gives us a more solid foundation to work from. So I think first off, change our education system. Uh, second, uh, we need a currency system that's con- not constantly being manipulated based on somebody's guess as to what should happen. Or, um, or the, even the Federal Reserve, I don't think they're, I think it's very often political. Uh, I don't think yep. they're making decisions often strictly based on what's best for the economy. They, they do it uh, based on what's politically uh, tenable. And I see this with all of our institutions from healthcare to education to finance the Federal Reserve, all of them are playing political games rather than um, doing what's right. So, yeah, and that's the, one way, please. That's, so this is probably the third pillar is corruption is legal in the United States. You have lobbying, all, et cetera. And if you want our politicians to start doing what um, you know, looking after our best interests, you have to make their best interests align with your best interests. And the way you do that is to get money out of politics. So we need mm-hmm. a set of laws basically outlawing all the corrupt corruption that's currently legal. And I think, you know, that's probably the biggest pillar because you can't get changed in the direction that you want change until you get the people who represent you uh, thinking like you do. But anyhow, I didn't mean to get all yeah. I don't think No, you're good. I don't think that's terribly political to say because basically what I'm saying is both parties are corrupt and it's not that those are necessarily bad people, it's just a case of misaligned incentives. So I don't want to like brand anybody as bad or evil. It's just so often it's just a matter of uh tweaking the system to get things to work rather than ad hominem attacks. It's uh taking an engineering approach to society. So uh-huh. 
That's so that's exactly I was literally going to say it, it sounds like you've taken a first principles approach to sort of fix the crap that we're dealing with now. And I don't think anything you've said at all is political whatsoever, because A, because I agree with you, because I'm biased. <laughs> but B, I think I think it's a very logical approach to what's to what's actually happening. Have you have you heard of Andrew Yang? Is that oh, a name yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard him. He's uh, um, I like I don't agree with him on everything, but yeah, it, it's you're never going to find somebody you agree with on everything. And yeah. I think this is kind of going, to, going back to your what you're saying about robots and things like that, universal basic income, which we can we can get back to that. But uh, overall, yeah, I, I like him. I think he's a fresh voice, and I um, there's a few people like that. Yeah, I, I the, wish him all the best. I wish him success. So, what are you going to say? The, the reason why I bring him up is because one of the things that he's talked about in the past is exactly what you talked about, which is it's it the duopoly, the two party system is inherently broken because there isn't an incentive structure. That keeps the the peop, the best people's interests in mind. Like, forget about the UBI thing. It's like this whole like we're in this situation where there's money in politics, which is cha- not really allowing the true conversations to happen. It's just driven by the lobbyists and whoever has the most money. And so the people's true like you know their true beliefs and what they actually want to get done doesn't get heard. And then the other dynamic you have, and again, there's nothing wrong with being a Democrat. There's nothing wrong with being a Republican. I'm trying to be very, very non-biased here. You know, I I don't identify myself as a with either party, to be completely honest. But the majority is, if you're talking about specifically the United States, the majority of the country is independent. <laughs> so, like, who's representing the majority of the country? It's so weird. Like, I don't understand what the hell is going on. And so, my my bigger, broader question is: so you talked about those three pillars, you know, education, get money out of politics. Um, and I'm so sorry, I'm blanking on the on the middle one that you mentioned. Um, but you know, do, do you think do you think what what's required there for us to be able to get those three pillars going? Do we have to? Is it possible to fix the current system, or is this something we're going to have to start from scratch and like say Mars? Like, how do we get there? Like, well, you <laughs> now you're hitting on something. It's like Mars is an opportunity to start with a blank slate, just like America mm-hmm. was an opportunity to start with a, a blank slate. America is a really unique place, and um, it, it it couldn't have happened anyplace else because you need a fresh start at some point. So, I I'm interested to see how things are architected on Mars. Now, as far as currently, well. What do we do? I, I do think everything that all the issues that we're facing right now are solvable. It's it's just whether that happens or not, I don't know. And to what extent, I don't know. Because there's uh, A, uh, keeping your society from like completely tearing itself apart. And to, so it's, you know, um, going from slightly dysfunctional to terribly dysfunctional. And then there's... Um, saving it and per- perhaps and typically there's these uh, there's the rise and fall of empires and there's this arc and right now we're sl- kind of sliding down the slope now are we able to be the first empire in you know a thousand years that's able to correct that and reverse it because we can there, there's no reason why the u.s can't stay on the top of the heap mm-hmm. um uh, it's just a matter of you know getting everybody pulling in the right direction and i would say the the, the first thing that needs to be solved is uh, getting the money out of politics. And there's there's um, an organization, a bipartisan organization that's been pushing that for years. It's called represent.us. And I think if we fix that, then everything else will fall into place. 
Because as you said, most of us are in the middle. Most of us are independent now. All of us, most of us are pretty damn sick of the people on the fringes just that are controlling the narrative and then the media feeding into that. So um, yeah. if we can uh, regain control of the politics by reducing the corruption, um, I think everything could turn around. Yeah. It's, it's not as terribly hard as you would think it would be. Right. It's, it's kind of like, and I think represent.us sets it up this way. It's like, well, look at marijuana legislation. You know, you start at the local level, you get these things signed, and then you keep pushing it up. And um, yeah, it's grassroots over time. And eventually, the entire U.S. is going to have weed legalized, and that'll be like federal. Uh, yeah. You work up through the bureaucracy to get things changed. Yeah. So if, if people stop getting distracted by um, petty politics and intractable issues that people have been arguing over for 50 or 60 years, um, passion politics, then, yeah, there's no reason why we can't fix it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I So it's, it does really sound like if that money variable... You remove that. It's it's really the biggest blocker because that that will that will really allow the voice of the people to actually be heard. <laughs> it sounds like, and then once you have that dynamic, then you actually have an environment where the right things will be worked on when you yeah. hear that based on the people's will. Yeah, right? and in terms of the word corruption, I think it's really important to understand what that word actually means. Mm. Uh, people, when you say corruption, people think that oh, like there's people in a back room smoking and just like these evil people. No, it's just a case of um, the way that our government is set up. It's supposed to be there to serve us. And when it's not doing that, that by definition is corruption. It's a corruption of the process. It's mm. not uh, uh, running as it should. And it, there doesn't need to be any um, evil or. Um, yeah, no. Yeah. It doesn't require anything personal. It just requires right. the system to be fixed. Right. It's it's a technical term that really defines how the, the correct ins, the, the incentives aren't built correctly, or there are incorrect incentives in the system that are making the system corrupt. Meaning that they're not. It's not actually working the way it should be. It's broken. It's corrupt. Yeah. It's like a file. It's like a hard drive. Right. <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say. Is yeah. like you have a corrupt file on a drive. Well, what yeah. you do is you clean that up. So that's exactly what I was thinking. Gotcha. Gotcha. One of the things you mentioned uh, through that thought process was, you know, the United States, you know, might have a, a, a chance to be um, sort of we are in this sort of mega cycle sort of thing where the United States is going, uh, you know, it could have if, uh, an opportunity to right the ship, call it, you know, whatever you want to call it, wherever we are right now. Did you ever see there was a video that I saw? I think his name is Ray Dalio. Does that name? Yeah. Yeah. He did a, he has a book, he has many books, I think, but he has a video where he has like the, you know, like the cycle one. I don't know if, if, if you yeah. know what I'm talking okay, so about. So there's, uh, there's a couple things going on right now. First is there's this generational theory where like, you know, mm -hmm. you have four, every four generations, like you have to relearn things and start from scratch over again. But mm -hmm. there's also the longer arc of history, the arc of empires. And mm -hmm. yeah, so he did a, a that's a, what it was. A so we have all these things happening at once. And also, um, I oversimplified the generational theory thing because there's actually a couple different cycles within the cycles. Mm -hmm. So there's um, kind of like a social organizational cycle, and then there's uh, like a financial cycle. Well, mm -hmm. uh, they operate on different time frames. So 
something like the 1970s, we had all these financial shocks, all these financial issues. And then, of course, there was uh, World War II, where it wasn't a financial thing. It was more basically the structure and organization of society and how we deal with problems. So, but yeah. now this is the first time where uh, we have both financial issues, serious financial issues as a country. And we also have um, all these other um, organizational, bureaucratic, um, what, you know, what does it mean to be an American? What's our value system? You have all these things happening at once. This is the first time where we have everything happening at once. And on top of that, we have an ascendant power, China, challenging our dominance. So it's just, uh, we're set up to be in a position where this is the most stress um, America as a country has ever been in. Yeah. But it's also worth keeping in mind that um, America is just, and that's one thing I learned living overseas. Well, there's plenty of other places in the world where this is, they're just completely oblivious to this. And it means a lot to us, but it's all, it's mm. all very solipsistic and navel gazing because it's, it's our country. Um, yeah. But there's, you know, you can go to Africa and they have a completely different set of problems. They, you know, uh, what we do affects them. But uh, uh, if, if there's everything, ever anything going really badly in one part of the world, so long as they still have the borders open and you can leave the country, then you can start a new life somewhere and um, be free of a lot of those problems. That's true. That's true. Um, I, I want to ask you a question, but I know we're getting up to an hour. Are you still good with time? Oh yeah, I feel like we've yeah. like uh, it feels like still all of this is preamble. I feel like we just got started. <laughs> yeah, That's why like I wanted to make like, sure. <laughs> yeah, right now we're just having a like a casual conversation. It's yeah, like, we're just <laughs> kind of like when you're ha sit, having a beer. Uh, exactly. Like, just sitting in your armchair, just armchair philosophizing. Because yeah, neither I nor you have like a monopoly on the truth. We're just like bouncing right. Ideas, but, exactly. We're just bouncing ideas around. I just wanted to make sure I, I you know, because uh, I still have. I mean, this conversation can probably go 10 hours, but I'm not going to do that to you. Trust me. Um, we'll end it at a reasonable time. Uh, and then if at any time we're hitting a time limit, please let me know because I, I want to be respectful of your time as well. You're being very generous right now. So thank you. Um, there was something you mentioned uh, when you were talking about the um, so, so the, 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 the empire cycles that we, that we talked about. Right. One of the guests that Dave Lee had on recently, I don't know if you saw the video. One of the things he posits is that we may actually enter a time where there's going to be multiple powers, multiple superpowers at the same time. So instead of having like, you know, you had uh, you had Holland or the Netherlands as the primary one, you know, eons ago, then you had the British empire, now you got the American empire, and now theoretically the Chinese empire is gonna become the superpower. And, you know, and you kind of build a hierarchy based on that relationship. One of the things that I heard from that discussion and. Dave, if you watch this, correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that there is multiple, there's going to be multiple superpowers at the same time. So we're kind of going away from the age of one superpower. How, what do you think about that? Do you think that's, is that a sustainable sort of hierarchical thing that the Earth's population can handle? Like, can we learn to cooperate with multiple superpowers at once? Is that the ultimate goal of, of human societies to have that sort of environment? I'm curious to your thoughts and of course this is a big question so if you need yeah, time to think well, about it yeah oh no it's um i think it was bound to happen at some point the cycle is the cycle until it stops because you know um the rise and fall of empires isn't something that's set in stone it's just a byproduct of the way it was an accident of history so how long will that continue well we don't know 
you know, we may continue doing this rise and fall of empires, but uh, at some point, and, and empires will always rise and fall, but we're but what we're specifically talking about here is that there's one global dominant uh, superpower, and then everybody else just has to play by their rules. Yep. So I think we are getting to a point where it is possible that we can break that cycle and have a multipolar world. Now, how that works and what the implications of that are, I don't know. Um, and I don't think anybody knows the, the answer to the question that. Yeah. Uh, one thing I am concerned about is, as I said, bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is... Uh, it's the worst human invention. And a lot of countries are starting to work together and build systems together. And sometimes that's uh, good and productive. You need this international coordination. But one thing I'm concerned about earlier that I, earlier I said that if there's something bad going on in your country, as long as those borders are still open, you can get out of there. But what happens when we get into a world where it's uh, you get so much coordination between governments and so much similar thinking between governments that there's nowhere to escape to except Mars. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that's, um, that, what, that would be more of a dystopian take. But. Yeah. What do you think are the chances of that happening? Cause that, that's kind of entered my mind too. It's like, if, if we live in a place where every, everywhere just sucks, right. Which could very well be the case, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you know, you've had, I'm reading this book, Sapiens. I don't know if you read if you read Sapiens before, but it's like it talks about like the history of humankind a little bit. I'm like halfway through it, and um, one of the things it talks about is like you know we've gone from like having a we've gone from a tribal culture, you know, of like maximum of like a hundred to now you have countries that are 1.3 billion, right? In in the case of China, or one point I don't even know what India's at right now. I, I forget which one's bigger, but anyway, you can see like these these communities are going from extremely small to gigantic because of sort of um, bureaucracy and laws and these like and things that we've invented that are not really in the physical world. They're just concepts that humans have invented that have allowed us to keep people sort of together in really, really gigantic groups that appear to be in a way unnatural. Like if, if you were, if you just kind of reversed it back to like, if you remove technology, out of the equation, which you can make an argument that's part of the human natural course. But say you remove that and we go back to like, you know, 200,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago when we're just roaming the earth, like it's freaking impossible to have more than 100 people because someone's going to be backstabbing you at some point. You have a thousand people, you're going to have a mutiny, it's going to break up again, and then you'll have a sort of an order of like 100 and less people per group. So then I'm thinking about that, like, okay, so we got into a point now where we have 1.3 billion people under one umbrella. Okay. What is the actual limiting factor? The limiting factor. Aha. <laughs> that was by accident too. <laughs> I'm proud of myself. That was good. Um, that, that says that you can't get to an area where you, the entire earth's population is under one umbrella. Like even if it's obvious or not obvious, like what is there a limiting factor? Is there something there that's, that wouldn't allow us to get there? You know? And I've been thinking about that. It's like, okay, so what, what is the thing, if we figured out how to keep 1.3 billion people together from a hundred, why wouldn't we keep 8 billion people under one umbrella that's kind of ruled and sort of, they behave in a similar manner, regardless of where you live. It's just what it is, you know, the new world order. I don't know people have been talking about this, but 
Have you thought about this at all? Do I sound like a maniac? Should I go no, back well, to, yeah. This is this is a challenge that's been posed every time that humanity upscales uh, from, yeah. upscales our group size. And it's always enabled by technology and uh, political innovations. Like for instance, here in the US, we have our cities, we have our counties, we have our states, we have the national government. Well, uh, what happens when we try to put the entire world, and, and I'm not like a one world government, evil conspiracy thing, but right. the thing is, is, uh, there's a lot of people to organize now. Um, you know, we're, and you can see this with COVID. There was uh, like a global narrative that developed and a global response to it. Whether you consider that's positive or negative is moot because that would get into really, um, uh, that would get into political things. But, um, but we can say for sure is that there's, uh, that was probably the strongest instance I can think of of a global response and the the world acting as one more than yeah. I've ever more than any other example that I know of. So it feels like we're moving that direction where there has to be some sort of uh, coordination between countries. And <clears throat> I guess there's two ways that could go. One is that you have um, all these bureaucracies uh, put their solution in place, or um, hopefully we can find something that's more innovative that. Because there's, there's always a push and a pull between the rights of the individual and then the rights of the collective. And what the bureaucracy does is it's, uh, no, no, that's, that would be, I'm conflating topics there. But that's okay. yeah, so <clears throat> how can you preserve the rights of the individual and have a prospering uh, multi-billion person population in the world? And I think that's, fully enabled by the smart use of technology. So I don't see any limit. We just have to build another layer on top of humanity because, you know, if things go the way that Elon Musk wants them to go, we have our, you know, as I said, we have the national level and then we have international level. And then, you know, the planet kind of becomes its own island. And then you have you know, if we settle Mars, then that would be another planet. So we're uh, we're upgrading our organization systems to a planetary level. Well, now mm -hmm. after we've settled enough planets, then we have to find a, a multi-planetary framework for organizing. Yeah. It's just, um, and it's not like, there's plenty of smart people out there who can work this stuff out. But the problem is those voices are being drowned. I, and this is why I'm so frustrated about bureaucracy. And I keep bringing it back to that because I've worked in the bureaucracy and I can see how absolutely stupid they operate. It all comes down to shouldering um, politics, people jockeying for power. And there's a few voices in the room often that are speaking the truth and that have good ideas and they often get drowned out or squashed. Yeah. So yeah, if we can just get our systems working properly, all the problems will be solved because all the answers are out there. Most of this stuff you sit down in a room with for two or three days, kind of like they did when they put together the uh, the Constitution, and you, you can work this stuff out as long as everybody's um, acting honestly. So, yep. yeah, I don't it's think so there's a lim the limiting factor is our ability to interact honestly and um, without corruption in the in our systems. Yeah. The the point you made around the constitution being written in two to three days, the, the what what sort of sparked my mind there. It's obviously I, I, the constitution. A few weeks, I forget what it was exactly, but it wasn't a long period. Super short time frame, right? To like found a essentially found a country from scratch. Yeah, took them two to three weeks. Way. Yeah, exactly. 
So what what I the immediate thing that I thought about then is so when with my time at Tesla, okay, we had this rule in the warehouse that I worked at was that everything can be solved in 20 minutes. It doesn't matter how hard it is. If you really focus your attention to what you're working on and you're working with the right people and you're approaching it honestly and you're giving it 100% effort, there is nothing that you can't solve in 20 minutes. Nothing. And that was proven right again and again and again. Now, solving is different from executing, right? Executing might might last longer, you know, obviously, because you have, you know, you may have a supply chain that you have to sort of cater to or whatever. You know, there's many multiple factors. But from a problem solving perspective, and, and maybe the 20-minute rule is a three-week rule for founding a country, whatever you want to call it. But it's not decades. It's not years, you know. And if you take the example of the of the Constitution, a very robust set of rules and laws that are have kept the United States and have allowed it to reach the highest highs that humanity has ever seen. You know, if you commit, you know, if, if you believe that the United States is the greatest country on earth, which, you know, whatever, it, that's up to, for people to judge. But you can't you can definitely make an argument that it was a very, 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 very good document and a very good SOP for how to build a the best country that, that could exist. Right. And so where my head goes to immediately is like, how much, and I think it goes, ties right back to those bullshit jobs. Like this is like a four circle conversation. Like everything can be solved so fast. Everything can be solved so fast, but the career building, the insecurities, the jockeying for power, there's so many different freaking dynamics that make it so hard. And once you're able to sit down with those like-minded individuals that are really passionate about that solution, it's freaking magic. And that's, and that's sort of what really I get reminded of that all the time when I think about my time at Tesla is that that was the best example of that, that I have ever experienced in my life. And I'm curious, like how, how can we get other companies and situations or areas to work in that same manner, you know, to exist in that same manner where you allow everyone's full potential to be reached in those environments so that they can solve those gigantic problems in 20 minutes or three weeks or however long it may take. Right. Um, anyway, I just wanted to get that thought out because I resonated with it so much that, Everything can be solved way faster than you think, you know, everything can be solved so much faster than you think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, um, for instance, I was, um, and I'm bringing personal examples into this, but there's at one point we got implemented a new software system and mm-hmm. it, they said, all right, this needs to constantly evolve. And this it's, uh, so they gave us the tools to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, what I did is I just got a few people together and I said, all right, what are the things that are most painful about this system that you want fixed? And then I went and I looked into how um, difficult each one of those things were to fix. So the things that were really a high pain and really easy to fix, like literally a one to two minute fix in the system that would save hours a week. Those are the ones that I put at the top of the list. And I also took into consideration how likely um, those fixes were to cause a problem. So within two weeks, I put through something like seven to 10 changes that drastically improve the quality of life for the people using that software. But mm-hmm. then what happened is there's uh, people were getting frustrated that I was getting changes through so quickly. So what they do is they put a, uh, a, a team in place to start collecting all the different issues people were having with the system. And then it turned into a political thing. Whereas what they started doing is, uh, so I got all those seven to 10 changes done in a few weeks. Them, Every three months, they would do a similar number of changes, and they would like uh, it would cause issues with people's workflows and things like that. It was just, yeah. So I guess 
that's one thing. And then another thing you were saying that I picked up on was that <sighs> often people sit down and they want to create a solution to a problem that's permanent. That doesn't exist. There's no permanent mm -hmm. solution. And what you have to be able to do is take your culture and build it in such a way. And this is what was built into the Constitution. What's so smart about it is that we can constantly adapt and evolve. So in 20 minutes, you can find a solution that is at least a Band-Aid fix at the very minimum. And um, perhaps over time, you can find something better. But there's no, no sense sitting around trying to find a solution that's going to work for years and years and years. Meanwhile, the problem festers. So... Yeah, I guess I'm just injecting the time factor and adaptability into that. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head with that sort of like that um, making. So there's no perfect solution. It's just you have to keep building on it. That's a culture of innovation, right? That is to me, that's what it sounds like. That's a, the, the culture of innovation. And so the first thing that comes to mind there is Tesla's ability to do that. Like, you know, if, if we're going to like shift the conversation directly to, to that point, like that is to me why, and we've talked about why Tesla's, you know, culture of innovation is so strong, but like, we've just sort of had a, an hour plus long discussion, an hour and 20 minute long discussion that's sort of like prefaced uh, or, or prefaced, <laughs> prefaced. I say, dude, my wife hit me so hard on this, dude. Like I said, preface accidentally the one time. And she's like, preface, it's preface. I'm like, ah, and now I can't stop saying preface because I said it like, and uh, anyway, I'm just going to start rambling about that. I don't want to do that. Sorry, audience. Sorry, Jordan. <laughs> but um, yeah, the, the, that, that culture of innovation is really what, what is such an important thing for everything as, as a problem solving core period. Forget Tesla, anything else. It has to be like, hey, the, the first solution you come out with isn't necessarily going to be the ultimate solution. You have to get used to constantly making changes and constantly making things better. And if you have that mindset in your head is truly going to be the thing that's going to allow you to, to, to make those things happen. And that's why I think Tesla is so effective on that topic. Um, and I DM'd you about this earlier today. Uh, Elon said master plan number three, he's working on it. Okay. Um, and we think about like master. Yeah. Just jump in here real quick. Please. Now, I said there's one way to do it is this uh, grassroots movement from the bottom up to start changing our institutions. Mm -hmm. But one thing that very I would love to see happen if all of our other institutions fail, it seems like Tesla and Elon Musk are the only adults in the room at the moment like mm -hmm. uh, the, that are able to think clearly and execute really well. Mm -hmm. um, what I hope would happen if like the grassroots thing doesn't work is Tesla just crushes everybody, crushes all the competition, and they just become this um, machine that just cranks out people that think a certain way. And those people go out, they move into other companies, start their own companies, infiltrate government, just these, uh, the foot soldiers of change being uh, cultivated in Tesla. So that's another potential way that I could see, see that working. It's like, well, if Tesla can do it, why can't you? And yeah, it's just- dude. You nailed it. <laughs> Honestly, you nailed it. Cause I, I, that is what I'm most excited about. Mm -hmm. Seeing it internally is it, I could 100% say with tr full confidence that it absolutely changed how I think about everything. Just working at that company. First principle, you can first principle everything. You can first principle freaking everything, everything. Your, how you approach your life, how you solve problems in relationships, like it just teaches you to like think to the core, get to the freaking root cause. Like for, don't reason by analogy, reason, just look at the thing 
identify the core things that are going on and then and then work it from the way up and then take those and then solve the problem based on that knowledge that you have and that information you have. And I think what you said is 100% going to happen without a doubt, without a doubt. I think I think there's going to be a ginormous number of people that are, have worked at the company and will work at the company, especially as long as Elon is there and driving that culture forward. That can be a separate topic. You know, do, do we think that's going to continue in the future? But as long as that continues, I think more and more talent is going to come out that is going to have exactly those skill sets and 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 sort of behaving principles that you've you've talked about. I'm so freaking excited for that time. And I think probably in the next 10 to 20 years is when we're really going to see that come to fruition. Like, and and then if I also draw a different parallel to that too, you think about what happened with COVID. You know, in the last two years and of course, a, a, an awful thing that has uh, impacted many families. But for some people, it was a blessing in disguise. Like I put myself in that bucket because it allowed me to like really rethink who, what the hell, what's my purpose? Like, what am I supposed to be doing here? You know, like, am I sure I'm going down the right path? And that it wasn't really a reset per se, but maybe you can make an argument that it kind of was the, the catalyst for that in, in a lot of ways, is that it, I think it's gonna enable, it has enabled people to really sit down and think, okay, what am I, what's going on? Like this, just this thing happened and the world feels like it's falling apart. Do I, how do I fit in this equation, right? And then you have a company like Tesla that for the people that have experienced both things, so like, for example, myself, you know, I gain so much inspiration and I feel like I have so many different skill sets and I'm not saying I'm going to be successful at all. I don't know what the hell I'm doing, bro. Like I'm literally like, like I'm an idiot walking around. I don't know what I'm doing, but I do see many other people that are within that Venn diagram, you know, that, that sort of combination that are going to be, yeah, I'm, I'm just repeating my point. I think you nailed it. I think you hundred percent nailed it. And, and I'm very excited to see that happen. And I think it's going to happen. If there's one thing I'm very confident about is that that's going to happen for sure. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Oh, yeah. no, it's, I think both you and I share that view that it's okay. The cars and all this stuff is great that Tesla is doing, but the most important thing that they're doing is unlocking human potential. Everything yes. else is a side effect of that. And that's the most important thing is because it makes your life better. It makes everybody else's life better. It makes your life more satisfying. It gives you more hope. It's just, uh, it's, it's at the root of everything. So you can, you might be able to disregard everything I was saying about education, monetary system, et cetera. If we get educated people to think a certain way, they'll go in and they'll fix that stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think that would still be needed in, in, in a lot of respects, but it's just, you're just speaking. Yeah. You're speaking deeply to me because I, I saw that. I saw that. And yeah, dude, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be freaking magical. It really is. It's going to be, it's going to be awesome. Um, how do you think that's widely known? Like, do you, do you think the point that you've made about how, you know, Tesla could potentially like really be the, 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 the machine, I guess, that, uh, allows humans to really reach their true potential, like, or at least one of the huge variables. I think like, it's, I think it's the least appreciated part of Tesla. And I've mentioned this in past videos that I'd like to go in and do a couple deep dive videos into that. It's a very different topic area. Um, but it's something I know my, because my degree is in organizational leadership, which is management partnered with organizational industrial psychology. So, <clears throat> yeah, uh, absolutely. I think it's underappreciated. And regardless of what happens with Tesla, I think Elon's greatest legacy is just um, his deep understanding of people and how to, how to get them to work better together.
So yeah, some people have compared him to Jesus. And <laughs> I think dude, when I had Galley on my podcast, he made that same exact reference. I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> well, you know, it's actually I've actually thought a lot about that, and uh, I think he is one of those people that comes if he does everything that he says he's going to do or he wants to do. But there's yeah. no reason to believe it won't, as long as um, he's. Uh, sticks around on the planet long enough because my God, yeah. he beats the hell out of his body. I don't know how yeah. his body's still going after, his, you know, yeah, after how much he's put himself through. But if Elon does the things that he intends to do, he will be one of the most important people in human history, like making us interplanetary, um, uh, accelerating the shift to electric vehicles by about 10 years. And then on top of that, you have Neuralink, uh, the boring company, all this other stuff. And yeah. all that comes down to just the, his way of thinking. And um, the more people you can get thinking like that, regardless of whether they're intelligent is him, uh, if you get people thinking like that, then you can do amazing things. Yeah, 100% yeah. agreed. But that's a whole, yeah. I'm very excited to see that that your videos on that. I'm like, I'm going to be freaking, like I already have your stuff on notifications, but like as soon as that thing comes out, I'm going to be like, yeah. I want to go freaking. It's like, well, the first question is, is like, oh, how does Tesla do things so quickly? And how is it that you can have one person get more done in a week than you can have 10 people get done in two months? Right. Why is that? How does that happen? And there's several different layers of uh, psychology and ability and just Pareto curves and things like that, just the way that we are biologically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. All, yeah, I can't all, wait to see it. Yeah. I don't know when I'll get around to that. I was planning on doing it early this year, but, and whenever I start digging into a topic, it expands and I realize there's a lot more than I thought there was. So, um, sure. Who knows when I'll get there, but it is, I have plenty of content to keep me busy for years. There's just too yeah. much to cover. That's great. That's, 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 that, that must both feel, uh, very good and also daunting. I'm sure. Cause then I, I, do you view it as like a, as like a giant list that you have to like, I feel like I'm not doing enough for people. Like, and I, I want to say that. Well, I mean, it's just, I wish, uh, probably a better way to put it is I wish I could make about three or four clones of myself because I, I need one clone <laughs> covering the news and analyzing stuff. I need one clone mm -hmm. like doing analysis and I need another clone managing social media. Actually, maybe one more clone for doing uh, paperwork <laughs> because yeah. like taxes yeah. and things like that, man, they suck your time. Yeah. Just just as once again, interacting with bureaucracies, uh, the past few months, 50% of my time has been spent interacting with bureaucracies and that's just a waste of human potential and it doesn't generate any value for people. Yeah. So yeah. It just throws, uh, a, just throws a stick in the wheel of people who are trying to get things done. Now there's there sure. a certain amount of, uh, regulation, et cetera, but we can do it more intelligently. Yeah. A lot of it is very inefficient. I a hundred percent agree there. Um, now, you wanted to get into Elon's tweet about, uh, the, yeah. Uh, yeah, the master plan part three. So do you, have you had any time, any time to like, sort of like think about what that could be? You know, I have some thoughts and I'm, I'm curious if we can bounce that around some ideas. So if you want me to go first, I'll be happy to go first, but have you, have you thought about sort of what, what that means within the context of what Elon and Tesla are trying to achieve? I haven't had much time to think about it, but there's, so I was, after I got that message from you this morning and I, I read the tweet. I started thinking about it a little bit, but I really haven't applied my brain to it. So yeah, by all means, shoot, I'm curious. Yeah. So I woke up this morning 
And uh, first thing I did was finalize sort of the, you know, the, the questions I, ha I had for you. Thank God I did that first. Because the next thing I did was go on Twitter and I saw that tweet and then my brain just like exploded. I'm like, oh my God. Okay, so what are the implications here? So this is kind of how I'm thinking about it. And I would love for you to tell me if I'm batshit crazy or if I'm thinking about this logically and how this plays into how you would think about this problem. And obviously this is going to be a, a, this is a, there's a lot, we need weeks to sit down and think about what this actually means. And we need Elon to actually come out and say, hey, this is what the master plan is, but I can't help but be excited and try to figure out what it means. Okay. So um, the, the first thing that comes to mind is that I think Elon is still, so, so what was, let's start with what was part two. So part two was put a vehicle in every single segment, right? In every single car segment, solar roof, uh, solar panels, you know, maximizing that and getting that finalized essentially. Uh, the third one was full self-driving. So get um, cars to be able to drive themselves and then the robot taxi network. If I remember part two word for word, and I think that was it. I don't think I'm missing anything. And correct me if I'm wrong, if I did. Um, but th those are the major things. So, okay, so that is the baseline. And so my, part two already has those things, right? So we can assume that him saying I'm working on part three has the implication that he's close to or has solved every single one of those things. And it's just a matter of just finalizing the execution and just waiting for it to come to fruition. So well, that tells me that there's confidence that every single one of those things is good to go. Cool. So what's the next step? So if, if those things are finalized, the, where my head goes is, okay, so what other forms of transportation require or, or would benefit from having uh, an electric vehicle drivetrain and, and batteries to power it, right? So my head goes to boats and planes. And he's talked about this in the past. I think he was on a podcast with Joe Rogan where he was kind of, you know, picking at him. He's like, when are you going to do planes? When are you going to do planes? And, you know, I said, I was like, well, first cars, then semis, then boats, then planes, right? So my gut tells me that, okay, so that the, the next work that they're going to be working on is boats and planes. So that may be part of part three. Then the second thing that comes to mind is um, I think the solar roof stuff that they're working on is, has been giving them a lot of issues because homes are so freaking different. Every single house is built differently. And there's probably a lot of assumptions around, hey, is the home even built as efficiently as possible so that you can really maximize its space? There's a host of different things, right? So where my head goes to is like, okay, so if you really want to maximize solar roof, what if Tesla was able to make its own house so that they can just do the roofs right on there and they're fully integrated with a battery system and the HVAC system that people have been talking about and he's brought up in the past. So could that be part of the equation as well? So that, that's where my head goes. It's like, okay, homes. And so why is that important? That you think about colonization of Mars, okay? I think tapping into the supply chain of how to build a house on Earth is not only very important, but also crucial to start getting the materials over to Mars to start building a freaking colony. And no one's gonna be able to do that profitably, right? So someone's gonna have to bear the cost to do that at first. And I think if, if Tesla were to get into the home business on Earth, it sort of sets up uh, a supply chain and knowledge on how to take that knowledge and take it to Mars and start building out an actual physical colony with homes that are self-powered with solar, have batteries, have a HVAC system for cooling and heating, generates oxygen, so on and so forth, right? Um, and so, and I think the other variable there too is like how to take everything we've learned on Earth to Mars 
could be part of that master plan as well. So you've solved the transportation, you've solved the energy generation. Oh, the other one was too, was solving for AGI, you know, solving for the bots. It's okay. So that's going to be part of master plan three, because we need someone to do the work on Mars to put the houses together, to build the roads, right? So SpaceX will ship all the parts over and the bots. They'll have the cars and the materials to build colonies. They'll build out the colonies using their knowledge of how to build a house with a solar roof and batteries. And then X is born to bring everything together, that like the conglomerate of companies, to actually execute against that mission on Mars. Okay, so I'll shut up there because I just threw a bunch of shit at you. Uh, tell me how crazy I am, and am I going up the wrong tree? And curious to hear your thoughts. Ooh, so in terms of expanding into other types of um, vehicles, uh, like air transport and shipping. I think the materials, we need a lot more materials before we do that. So uh, I doubt materials would be part of their, their next master plan, but like given what I'm seeing in the material space, the, there's a whole lot of mining that needs to be done and needs to be done um, in uh, more environmentally friendly ways. So I doubt that'll be part of Tesla's master plan, but I think everything that he would put in a master plan is contingent on the ability to pull those materials out of the ground, pull those atoms out of the ground and construct it into something. If we're talking about batteries now, in terms of like a bot, VTOLs, things like that, the non-battery portion of those vehicles, there's plenty of resources out there to build those like steel, et cetera. So now I, my view was that they were going to Tesla would potentially start designing an EV toll in the mid 2020s because the energy density is getting high enough now. But there's we have so much more still to solve terrestrial transport uh, that I think it's going to be, you know, the end of this day, decade, early next decade before we uh, get there or are getting close. And so, does would they would they make that part of the master plan or would they just kind of do that in secret just to like have a team tinkering around making a, a VTOL? Mm. Um, and ships, I don't know. I don't know enough about ships. I don't know what kind of what type of battery requirements they have, like energy density, et cetera. Because when it, whenever you're looking at like a product, you have to adapt the battery and the battery chemistry to that product. Is uh, energy more important? Is power output more important? It seems like ships, the, the main concern would be just um, energy density. Whereas with a VTOL, you need super high energy density, super high power output. So I'm getting a little bit too deep there, but like covering off your other points, the bot, absolutely. I think that's got to be on the next master plan. Uh, Tesla home and HVAC, I think that's definitely going to be on it. Cause I don't think people realize all the opportunities to make a house more efficient. There's just I need to talk to some, some more people that are experts in HVAC and understand exactly what those opportunities are and how you can uh, leverage the HVAC system in Tesla's vehicles that shifts basically shifts energy around heat energy to different places in the vehicle um, and how that could be used in a house, like taking hot air from the attic and using that to drive um, something else. Um, yeah, so I, I need to learn more about that. Um, I'm curious to see what's in it. Okay. Yeah. So I think, so it sounds like to me, so do you think mining could be part of that master plan part three? Like, because one of the things we talked about is shortage of materials, especially for the batteries. Could mining be that one of the variables? 
Well, typically he just puts uh, like product style um, mm. things in there. Whereas materials is, you know, they've already started getting into it more than I thought they would. But it's like you need to, with the mining industry, it's like you need to um, start from scratch and first principles. And but the mining industry is also so dependent on regulation. I don't know if it's a space they want to play that heavily in. Mm. There's there's something else I was thinking. It slipped my mind. Oh, the EV toll. Mm. So it depends on. What, he, what exactly he has in mind for that. So in, an EV toll could be several things. It could be something within a city. It could be between cities. It could be um, across the country. But the battery technology isn't there to, to do EV tolls that go across the country. It would more likely be, be something within cities or regional. But what's more important is just the way that Elon rethought the way that electric vehicles should be. He would completely rethink the way that um, electric, the way that aviation is done. Because it's just, mm. it's thought out so poorly now where you have these hub and spoke models where you, you uh, like me coming back from New Zealand, like I had to find the, I always had to find the closest airport to my hometown, which is two hours away from uh, the nearest airport. I live in the middle of nowhere. So mm. all these airports are far away. Yet there's an airport, uh, a small airport just outside of town that would be perfect for like being dropped off by an EV toll. So mm. air travel is one of the things that has, is, it's such a huge pain. And Whoa. I think they completely redo the industry rather than just making a jet. But I don't know if he wants to tackle all that. That's that, interesting. That, I don't know if he wants to tackle all that this, this early, but I think given enough time, I would think in like the 2030s would be the perfect time frame for that. Battery technology would, a great, would be in a great spot. He would have most of the, um, most everything in place for, uh, energy storage and vehicles, and they would be needing something else to chew on. But gotcha. Certainly, they could. It takes about ten to fifteen years to design a jet and get it certified. So it's something I would think they'd want to start on now, um, and then maybe put it into the next master plan at around twenty twenty nine. And but they're they're already most of the way there with their skunk works. So anyway, yeah. I'm just throwing around ideas. I'm no for sure. Yeah, I yeah, know. And, and I love that. The one thing, so the one thing you said about air travel, which like kind of blew my mind, what you just said, the, it's like, you know, whenever I travel, I just, that's one of those things I don't think about it. Right. I'm like, it just is what it is. I got to drive, you know, now I got to drive 40 minutes to the airport. Thankfully I used to have to drive an hour. Sometimes I have to drive an hour and a half, two hours. Right. Um, depending on where I'm going or, or what kind of flights are available, but correct me if I'm wrong, what you're insinuating here is that there could be a possibility for, um, for using more regional airports or, or airports that are closer to someone's home or place where they want to travel from, which could theoretically sort of revamp how we think about what a plane or a jet should be. And so where my head went to immediately, and tell me if I'm wrong thinking about it this way, is it wrong to assume that maybe we might have smaller planes, but we have more planes? Exactly. Does, does that, yeah. yeah. Because it, it yeah. Uh, it works out well to use many smaller planes uh, because the, the more mass that you have, the more battery it takes. So it's uh, it, it would be better to use smaller aircraft. And 
hopefully, I don't know what the rules are around this, but like if you ever take a helicopter ride, there's no security when before you get on a helicopter. Right. What if we could eliminate all that security, bring you to airports that are close to where you live with smaller groups of people, and just it's more like an air taxi between cities. And that would eliminate um, a lot of... Uh, it would save people a lot of time. It would make people's lives easier and better. But we also have to take into account the whole ecosystem that uh, Elon has in mind. If, like with the Boring Company, uh, just making travel around towns more efficient just by eliminating traffic. So that's at the highly local regional level. We may not need VTOLs within cities or between cities if we get the uh, vehicle infrastructure better so there's no more traffic jams. And so then I think probably... You know, the VTOL makes more sense when you're starting to look at more like something regional if you have the local taken care of. And then if you're looking at ultra long distance, like across the, the world, that's what you where Starship comes into play, mm. where you can just go uh, to the other side of the world in like an hour. So mm. it's there's so many factors there and things are changing so quickly. Yeah. Just with, it, the, it, just with the material space the ground has completely shifted in the last three to six months. It's no more about the cost of the batteries. It's how many batteries can you acquire because material shortages are coming into play. Mm. And because everything is inflating, um, Tesla can raise the cost of their vehicles. Now, well, and on top of that, the, the issues that we're having with oil price, um, Tesla has so much demand that you know they can raise the price of their vehicles as much as they want. So I think they're raising... I don't think that they're raising the prices due to material costs. They're raising the prices due to demand, but at wow. least covers the increase in material costs. So if that's the case, it's all about getting as many batteries as possible because people are willing to pay whatever it costs in that vehicle. Uh, I didn't know. I don't know if I explained that coherently, but no, you did perfectly. So, so, so do you, so off of that thought, are you envisioning a gigantic shortage of batteries in the next, say, three to five years. Like, do you think, do you think there that we're working on enough material supply to actually get us to where we need to be, or do you envision this being a gigantic cluster F for a long time coming until something materially changes? Well, it's not the end of the world. There's there's constantly going to be new material supply coming online. There's a whole lot of different factors to this. Second, uh, there's a a new vehicle that showed up like a, a model Y with like 280 miles of range. Yeah. The one thing they can do is they can offer battery vehicles with smaller pack sizes and they can make more vehicles with the batteries that they have. So say for instance, if Tesla decided to go for like a, a, a subcompact or a compact vehicle and just decide to make those into robo taxis, mm -hmm. those would probably use a battery pack that's half the size of a long range model three. So just <coughs> there, you double your production from 1 million vehicles a year to 2 million vehicles a year. Mm -hmm. So there's all these knobs and dials that you can turn. Now, what's happening right now with materials is there's a whole lot of hands reaching into a pot and, um, the people who are thinking ahead and are thinking smartly like Tesla had their hands in that pot first. So <laughs> Tesla is in the best position for raw materials, my understanding, um, out of any of the, the OEMs. And however, but you also have this other thing happening where a lot of these material suppliers don't want to make Tesla their sole customer. They don't want to give Tesla that much power. So it's like, okay, so Tesla's got the bulk of the material supply, but do we want to give it all to them? Do we want them to completely control our destiny? No, um, especially when they can sell those materials for about as much as they want. 
Right. So I think overall in the next few years, we're to continue to see Tesla uh, adapt and grow and continue a 50% growth rate. Uh, maybe they'll be able to continue that 50, 50% growth rate or greater, even though their material supply isn't growing at 50% or greater, just by mm. moving down market into those cheaper, smaller vehicles. Now, uh, it does start to pose, there's, there's only so long that you can stretch that. And I think beyond, at least the way I've modeled it out, uh, just my best guess is, is that beyond 2023, it's going to be real difficult to increase your uh, vehicle production by greater than 50% a year. So what, what happens then? Well, hopefully, you know, the U.S. government, et cetera, is uh, uh, there's people in the U.S. government pushing for like this. This needs to be part of our national defense strategy to acquire these materials. Let's get these mines up and running so that they can pass some legislation that makes it easier to open mines for battery materials and to reshore that into the United States. Then, and if we can move quickly on that, then I think you know, maybe we could see some relief in the mid 2020s, but it would require a lot of cutting through red tape and uh, a lot of innovation and a, and a lot of speed. I don't Does know. It. Yeah. So, but <clears throat> so there's that, there's the raw material side of it. And then there's also sodium ion is a potential uh, deus ex machina, like in the mid 2020s, we still need to scale uh, sodium ion battery technology. Um, and it would require a lot of effort, but the technology is there in case we do run into issues with lithium ion. Um, Got it. I, I think I still need to do more research on that, but it's looking pretty good. That's, uh, and that's sodium, sodium ion could be used for energy storage uh, because it has really low volumetric energy density. So it takes up a lot of space, not the best for cars. We could take all that LFP and maybe shift those LFP batteries from energy storage into vehicles. So. Um, there's a few potential pathways. I'm not convinced that uh, we have the solution in hand, um, but if things work out, then we may be able to continue to, Tesla may be able to. Now, other automakers, I think a lot of them are just screwed. <laughs> I, don't yeah. think, I don't think they're going to have the batteries they need. And uh, anyhow, I, uh, you were trying to in, interject there if you no, you're good no you're you're, you're good 100 I'm, I'm thank you for keep going with your thought i do and i apologize sometimes sometimes i jump in a little too early and i and i feel really bad so i apologize oh, no. Don't, yeah. no worries um so those materials so sodium ion and say the current materials and any next generation materials do you have any insight into knowing if these are sort of uh, available in specific regions on, on planet earth, or are these like widely available? Like say if, if countries wanted to localize their material supply, what does that look like? Okay, so there's no issue with any country localizing the battery material supply um, provided, to me it seems, A, you have to have the knowledge and know-how. Uh, America, we have plenty of people in the United States and in Europe that can build, the mines and the factories produce to produce the end chemicals. A lot of it comes down to is uh, restrictions. There's mining always re results in destruction of the environment. All you can do is minimize that destruction, but you also have to take a look at the greater good. Um, if you're trying to protect one animal um, at a mining site, well, yeah, you don't want to lose that one animal, that one species. However, what we're looking at with global warming, climate change, is the elimination of hundreds or thousands of species or tens of thousands of species. So what is the greater good here? Well, uh, open up that mine, 
uh, try to take care of that wildlife and make sure it survives because there are ways to do that and do it responsibly. Um, it will be an eyesore, et cetera, but it, at least you'll be solving the bigger problem. So uh, there's a lot of nimbyism and a lot of luxury beliefs where people want to keep continuing to living, living their lifestyle, having their cell phones and stuff with cobalt that's mined and child mines out of Africa, but they don't want to put the mines in their own country where you could have highly paid professional people doing the work. So I'm, I'm off on a really big sidetrack and I forget we were, what we were even talking no, about. No, we were talking about localizing materials. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no reason why it can't be done. It's just a matter of, um, from my perspective, cutting that red tape. And I think it's really, really important because look at what's happening with the Middle East. We're constantly getting in wars over there, over oil and things like that. We need to, um, it will make the world a better and safer place if these supply chains are localized and people can, um, you know, wars are always started over um, land, resources. Um, and if you eliminate those casus belli, those causes for going to war, then you eliminate a lot of war. It's once again, going back to first principles, fix the base cause of the problem. If you wanna fix wars, um, fix the the limitations that people have in certain countries yeah and that's literally exactly where my head went to when and i and i dm'd you about this a while ago so the 4680 right and when the russia ukraine stuff started happening the, the first thing that i did is like okay i know nothing about what's going on i'm going to educate myself right or try to i'm still i still don't really quite know what's going on the motives behind it and but the thing that really stood out to me is that it appears that, you know, and, and again, the worst thing about this whole thing is the humanitarian crisis. I feel like I always have to say that because it obviously is by far the worst thing that's happening here. There are people dying and it's freaking awful. Um, and both sides are suffering losses. And that's just a sad thing. But if you really think about one of the potential reasons why that thing started in the first place, Ukraine, Crimea, that Black Sea, there's a lot of oil there. There's a lot of oil there. And I watched a video by Real Life Lore that kind of explains sort of the dynamics that happened. And it appears that one of the variables that as to why that conflict happened in the first place could have been driven because of the oil and the fact that Russia is so dependent on oil for their um, economic output that it's it's kind of a no-brainer. I hate to use that word, but it's kind of a no-brainer for them to have access to that, okay? And so the thing that I started thinking about is like, okay, like you think about the 4680, which is a battery technology that theoretically is very flexible when it comes to uh, chemistries and sort of it, it's an ideal size for multiple uses. I'm not a battery expert, you are, so correct me at any time when, when I'm saying something stupid. But it appears that that could be, and I put out a tweet that I said, could 4680 be the catalyst for world peace? And what I meant by that is one of the main reasons, like you just mentioned, for war is access to resources to keep a civilization going, in this case, oil and energy, right? But if you have a situation where you have localized materials for batteries and people are able to source those materials in their own country or neighboring countries, and they don't have to rely on say uh, a Russia or, or a different country, whoever it is, that may have separate uh, sort of values or different um, sort of motives behind their civilization, uh, that could potentially impact your ability to get the energy that you need. So in this case, Germany is heavily dependent on Russia. We know that. And if that oil, you know, if they stop taking oil from Russia, Germany basically is in this terrible situation because they can't feed their energy for, for their civilization. But if we were in a situation where everything's powered by 4680 and 4680 is able to take localized production of the materials, especially long term, 
couldn't that technology be one of the main catalysts as to why war ends? Like, could that could that actually bring world peace forward? Um, and I, I messaged you about this a while ago, but I'm curious, like, so, within this context, like, is so it I, is that I, I, um, high in the sky? Yeah. As far going as far as saying that I'll uh, create world peace, I appreciate the sentiment, but it's uh, it wouldn't do that. But mm-hmm. I, I do think it leads to a more peaceful world when you have. Um, more sustainable energy and energy independence. Mm. So uh, in the Ukraine conflict, that's a, I've done a lot of digging into that. And it's, there's a lot of different factors to that because it's a mm. uh, part of it is cultural because I think uh, Kiev is kind of considered the heart of like the Slavic culture and uh, th- like that's where it originated. So it's like Russia trying to get their heart back, at least, you know, Vladimir Putin's were extremely nationalist. And the other mm. thing is like, um, Russia has uh, one of the biggest land, uh, most borders of any country in the world protect the most miles. So they have all this area to protect, like the, what is it, the North European plain? So there's um, a lot of reason they want these countries within their thrall is so that they can have um, a, a buffer in case anybody tries to invade them. Mm. So uh, that's another factor, but I could go on for, you know, another half hour listing all the different factors that are involved there. And I'm not by no means an expert, but I do know it's extremely complex. And um, a lot of it comes down to a sort of agreements and understandings that were reached after World War II and during World War II and in the 90s when we, um, when Russia or the Soviet Union dissolved, because mm-hmm. there was certain give and take there like agreements with nuclear weapons and things like that, who should mm-hmm. get them. And um, uh, all right, if Ukraine's going to give up its nuclear weapons to Russia, then Ukraine is like an independent country. So, and now uh, Vladimir Putin's kind of trying to rewrite history. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I do think, yeah, sustainable energy, um, each country having independence and the things that are most critical to them puts us on a path to a more peaceful world. For sure. I agree. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, I'm really curious to see how that how that pans out. You know, I, the one thing that's been interesting about the the development that's going on in that part of the world, you know, I, I, I don't want to get too much into it because I mean, I, I'm not an expert and I, and I hate to discuss about it, but I, it just, I'm just very, you know, as a citizen of the world, I'm just like, I'm hoping like it, it stops as soon as possible so that people can get back to living their daily lives. But it, it does really raise questions around, you know, sort of that, like, like war seems so outdated. You're, you're, we're here in 2022 and we got one country going after another with, it's just, it's, it's so weird. It just feels weird. But anyway, um, I, I don't want to leave it on too much of a somber note here. We're almost two hours in Jordan. So I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking I start wrapping this up cause I can yeah, keep go going for, for yeah. And I, and I hate so to feel, usually after yeah. like 30 or 40 minutes of an interview, my, my brain is cooked because it's, yeah. it's really intensive, but we're just kind of going where our brains take us. So it doesn't exactly. Really, okay. It's not really yeah. like a lot of highly technical thinking. So yeah. 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 Like I'm free to, uh, finish the conversation up on whatever your, your, yeah. So usually I like, um, I like asking a few questions at the end. Um, and, and the reason why I'm ending it now is because I know I can go on for another five hours, but I want to be respectful of your time. So anytime you want to come back, please let me know. Cause there's so many other things I want to talk to you about, but yeah. I just want to be respectful of your time. Um, so it's called the future game. Okay. And this is a game that's 
a game and there's just a few questions I want to ask you and I want to see if you can come up with the most, uh, I, all I ask is that you give me the most accurate date that you can based on your prediction, uh, based on the question that I ask. Okay. So just tell me exactly what date you think this is going to happen. Okay. And then we'll test it and see what happens. All right. Uh, so since we were talking about master plan part three, when do you think Elon's going to unveil the master plan? Well, if he's sitting down to write it, well, there's when he's finished it, when he finishes it, and when he posts it. So I don't know if there's going to be any any lag there. So I don't know. Like I imagine somebody like him, he wouldn't sit down to write that unless he had an idea in mind of what he wanted to put out there. So I would say within the next few months. Okay. Okay. So summertime, sometime. I'm guessing. Okay. Yeah. Got it. We'll go with that. Um, when do you think Cybertruck will officially launch? I'm going to have to say January of next year. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, because they need to get that. They need to build the lines, et cetera. And yeah, there's, I don't see it as a priority for Tesla because mm -hmm. they have, you know, it's a matter of like, there's so much demand for their current products. Why do they need to do a completely new product? Especially that product is probably, well, here's one thing I'm interested in is if they're going to be able to honor those original prices for like 40,000, yeah. 70,000. So they might wait for the materials situation to cool off a bit. <laughs> and, mm. um, um, but yeah, it's to me, I see it as a lower priority. So I would say January next year at the earliest, the demand is through the roof. I tried to call Tesla twice yesterday and I was uh -huh. on hold for an hour and I had to go off and do something else. So, what? Yeah, it's just they're getting bombarded. And Yikes. I'm not complaining about being on hold. It's just, I called a few months ago and I had no problem getting a hold of somebody in about five minutes. Now yeah. all of a sudden it's like well over an hour wait time. Boy. So. And, and, and you know, for a fact that they're, they don't have, I mean, they always have open positions, but I, I know for a fact they are, they have everyone they can get and they, they're still hiring. So it's not like there's a shortage. It's truly demand in that case if if, if that's it's an hour wait that's freaking wild what a brilliant way of gauging demand call the number and see if you have a wait time you know what i'm saying that's yeah. that's freaking well, brilliant well that's <laughs> the fact that they like they did the most comprehensive largest price increase across all their vehicles I, and I was talking to my brother last night it's like man this is the first time in our lives where a vehicle has been an appreciating asset crazy just like you know, you buy a house or yeah, you buy a vehicle and you're flushing your money down the toilet. But now my vehicle is worth $3,000 more. Well, I could probably even get more than that because there's a time value. A lot of people don't want to wait six months to get a Tesla. So if I sold my Tesla, I could jack up the price. Like, hey, you don't have to wait six months. You can have it now. So yeah, anyhow. It's such a wild dynamic too. And then you layer in, you know, again, this can, I can find myself that wanting this video to be 10 hours long, but the full self-driving layer you add on top of that, it's already an appreciating asset just purely because of the technology and the, and the times that we live in, live in. but then you freaking layer that full self-driving on top of it, forget it. It's going to be nuts. And, and when Elon does say like, it's going to be the greatest, I forget exactly how he awards it, but the greatest increase in asset and an asset value in the history of, of everything. I kind of believe him now because we're kind of seeing that sort of play out without even full self-driving. You layer in full self-driving, forget it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, just, it's just crazy to think about. Um, okay, when do you think the 4680 will be used for home storage? Oh, 
That's a tough call because they're basically, I've said this before, they're play, playing Tetris with battery cells. So I yeah. find myself playing, placing less emphasis on what battery cell they're using for what product and more on do they have enough cells to supply um, all their needs. I would, I'm thinking it's probably going to be a couple of years before we see the 4680 in those, because what they can do is uh, the 4680 works best for vehicles because assuming it has the highest energy density, that makes it the best um, bat battery cell for a mobile application. You want your higher highest energy density thing. So you can use the fewest amount of battery cells for energy storage. I think they're going to use LFP for everything, despite them saying that they were going to use nickel uh, for uh, power walls at battery day. Um, I, you know, as they said at the last earnings call, I think they're going to ship even that to lithium iron phosphate. And then, as I said earlier, if sodium ion becomes a thing, um, they can start shifting sodium ion into those energy storage products and shifting some of those lithium iron phosphate to like, you know, model two or model Q, whatever you want to call it. So we, I don't know, we might not see the 4680 in energy storage for a long time. Because what it's doing is it's just allowing them, um, giving them more options with their current cell supply and how they apply that to energy storage. Gotcha. Yeah. So 2024, maybe even 2025 at that point. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Gotcha. Um, last question of the future game. And then I'll ask one last question to see if I can actually fry your brain. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> when, will, uh, when do you think Elon will leave Tesla? And will he ever leave? I don't think he'll ever leave Tesla. I think he loves, he really loves making products for people. And I think he tweeted something to that effect today. It's like one of the greatest services you can do to mankind is yeah. uh, making products that are useful to them. And he loves designing. Like he's, he's talked about before, like that he had a book of old cars and just appreciating the designs of old cars. So it's a creative outlet for him. Like when I show people the Tesla, I'm like, well, you do know that Elon had a huge hand in designing this thing. He's not just some, you know, CEO sitting in a room somewhere. He's in the room with Franz von Holthausen, like every Friday, something like that, um, going through and refining these designs. So I think he's going to at least serve that function forever because he probably it's a good outlet for him, maybe a release, less stressful yeah. and, than a lot of the other st stuff he does. But as far as how long he'll be CEO of Tesla, well... <laughs> If some of these uh, auto companies go bankrupt, it might uh, put some uh, good auto CEOs out there on the market for them to mm. hire. So like maybe Herbert Deese or something like that, that would be good. Because just people that have had Elon's back and then they're supporting yeah. all the mission, um, they might be good. I actually think that's, what, that's a likely outcome. Like I give that outcome more than 50% that I think these will eventually be Tesla CEO at some point or president, like how you have Shotwell out of SpaceX that's sort of running operations and Elon's in the playground building stuff. Like I see Tesla being, and I know folks have talked about this, but Tesla sh could and should very well be follow that same exact model because Elon's been very open about how he doesn't like being CEO. He deals with a lot of stuff that he probably views as uh, bureaucracy and a waste of his time, right? Like he's the time is better used designing and building things. So I agree with you. And, and I do think, I do think, I mean, if you really think about like the timescale of when Volkswagen could potentially like, cause I know they, they're dealing with a bunch of bureaucracy in Germany. And then you got the whole thing where they're trying to, if, if anything, Volkswagen probably has one of the best, if not the best chance to survive this sort of thing because of his leadership. Right. But will it actually, right? Cause execution is a completely different sort of 
well, thing, you know? My, my view on that is, and this is what I said, like one of my first interviews I did, like the first month the channel was with Yvonne of the EV stock channel. And we were trying to work out which companies would survive and which companies would die. Volkswagen, I put it the, at the highest likelihood of surviving because um, the German auto industry is such a important serves such an important role in the country. So even if they do go bankrupt or something like that, I see them where they get in a, a hard spot, I see them being rescued. Um, whereas a lot of these other automakers, like hopefully they just fade away. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, you know, of course I don't wish it, that sucks for the people working there, but if you have an inefficient organization and society and you have a better option out there, better place to work like Tesla, then yeah, by all means, uh, let them fade away. But yeah, VW highest likelihood of success in, in my in my view. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I'm I'm on the same boat with you. Like I I hate seeing people lose their jobs. I really freaking do. That's like it's it's one of the worst things ever because like people's livelihoods are being impacted. But that's that's the company's fault. That's not like Tesla's fault. That's the company's fault for not really keeping up with that. And if I'm really thinking like you know. Sh- if a recession were to happen in the say medium turn near near to medium turn, I think it's really going to be the catalyst is going to be these automakers failing and not being able to keep up with either the supply of electric vehicles or just failing to completely shift their gears fast enough because that you know that ice cliff. If anything, one can make the argument that's kind of already happened and like the supply shortages that automakers are saying, well, I don't have enough chips to make my car. Yeah, but okay, but is that 10% of your problem or is that 100% of your problem? Like, and what I found in the past is that companies like to use one thing to drive the entire narrative when it's like a, the minority of the thing that's happening, but it's the point they use to keep investors and people around the company happy. But it's not really what's going on. But, you know, I don't know. I, 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 think, I think it's going to be a very interesting thing to see play out. I think it's going to suck really bad. And if there is a recession of any sort of economic turmoil, I firmly believe it's because of those auto companies failing. And there's going to be, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that are going to lose their jobs because that entire supply chain and industry is going to get, going to get completely disrupted. And you don't have the supply on the backside to backstop it on the electric side because of what you talked about. You have massive supply shortages. What the hell are people going to buy in the meantime? They're not going to buy a depreciating asset in an ICE vehicle. They're going to want to freaking buy an electric car and they're going to keep their used cars forever and they're not going to buy any new cars. You know, the recipe for disaster. So, yeah, um, crazy. Um, all right. Last question. Before I even say that, dude, I loved this conversation, dude. Like, I can't believe it's two hours. I really can't believe it's two yeah, hours. It, feel, it I, feels like something like you'd see on the Joe Rogan podcast. Where they yeah. <laughs> so the, yeah. I, I imagine it'd be even better in person. But it's, uh, yeah, I've enjoyed it as well. It doesn't feel like, like a whole lot of time has passed. This is like yeah. the type of conversations I have with my, my good friends, just freewheeling all over the place. And yeah. hey, who cares if you don't have the answer? You're just throwing stuff out there and you patch something together and you get somebody else's point of view. So Anyways, exactly. yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed it as well. So. Thanks, man. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. And I agree, man. It's a, the beauty of life is having these conversations. It's just getting to know other people and like seeing how they think and then shoot the shit, have some ideas. And we live in a, in a world where more, I think, I think if more and more people see this kind of dynamic with just more and more regular people, more and more people will be willing to have those conversations with people that maybe perhaps they never talked to before that now they're like step out of the comfort zone and have those conversations. So yeah. I Open think that's. Opening up that Overton window. And I think you're exactly uh, uh, you're as far as interviews, interviewers in the YouTube community, in terms of picking the brains of people uh, within the YouTube community, uh, as I 
wrote you, you do the best. You just have a really good interview style and you don't, you just kind of go with where your curiosity takes you and you're not afraid to go off the beaten path into things that neither of you know anything about, Right. you know, share your thoughts because that's, that's where a lot of the fun stuff happens. And that's where you uh, get some good ideas or you can't think um, you talking and thinking are inextricably linked and the, the ability to talk opens just automatically opens this the space up for you as well. And a lot of times you don't understand something until you've heard it come out of your own mouth. Exactly. And then you realize, oh, that thing, yeah, it sounded really good in my head, but when I said it, I'm kind of a moron. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so- <laughs> Welcome to my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dude, no, I, I appreciate you. That means a lot coming from you. I mean, thank, thank you so much for saying that. I really do think you hit the nail on the head is like that that speaking and thinking are so like, it's so different and you can't think unless you speak. And if you have a person that is willing to hear you speak and will either challenge you or help you think through those things just by having a conversation, there is no better way than to solve anything. Like that's how you solve what you're talking about, uh, whatever you're working on, your internal conflicts. It gives you food for thought for later. It's just such a beautiful thing. So yeah, I do. Thank you so much for saying that. That means a lot. It really does. Thank you, man. And likewise to you, man. It's like, yeah, just great, a great partner here to have a conversation. I don't want this to turn into massive bromance right now. Maybe in person, I'll give you a hug and a kiss (laughs) in the the forehead or something, but, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, Appreciation society. (laughs) 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 Oh my God. Um, all right. Uh, last question before we leave, what is humanity's purpose? Now I remember you asking this to Gally and I thought about it. Uh, reproduction. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's like a super basic first principles, but it's like, it's the, like, what's the point of doing anything if there's no generation after us to take advantage of and enjoy it? I mean, you could be in the, the type of person that thinks that we're just a flywheel for artificial intelligence, but that doesn't really, it's not really inspiring to think about. So like at the most basic biological level, um, we're, we're here to reproduce, but, and so that's the first thing that needs to be in place. But on top of that, it's like, well, now that we have this gift of life, whatever you want to refer to it as, how can we make the best of it? So, yeah. And I think what we were talking about earlier um, with Tesla and what it's doing for people, unlocking their potential, I think is um, adding meaning to people's lives. And I think that's what we should, we should, I don't know if that's the purpose of life, et cetera, but I think that's the most important thing that we can be doing is should, should be doing is we have this time that's given to us to, and we have to make the most of it and not waste it. And I see too much of people's potential and their lives being wasted. And I think it, it's such a, a ray of hope having Tesla there and showing that there's a, a different way to do this. Now, um, that could bring us if we do that, that can bring us to some really inspirational places. It can take us to Mars. It can take us to other solar systems. If Tesla keeps developing their artificial intelligence systems beyond the robot and we develop the superhuman intelligence, what if that thing can solve some of the basic problems of physics that would allow us to do like warp speed and things like that? So looking deep into the future, there's just so much cool stuff to look forward to. Um, and the, uh, the limiting factor for all that is how much we unlock the potential of the people around us. So that's my rant. Beautifully said. 
I love it. And I love it the way you started. Everybody, you heard it from Jordan. Go make babies. Reproduce. <laughs> go make it happen. Go, go make it happen, man. No, that's beautifully said, man. And I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Beautifully stated. Thank you so much, man. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I think this is the longest podcast I've ever done. And it could have gone way longer if I freaking didn't stop myself. So thank you so much for your time. I know I've taken a lot of your time and you have a lot of stuff going on. So again, thank you. I enjoyed it. You're welcome back anytime. I would love to talk about anything with you, um, either privately or publicly. I don't really care. I, I just I feel like I vibe with you quite a bit. And if, if you feel the same, I would love to continue the conversation in the future. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed it as well as you feel it didn't seem like it took over two hours. It was just, yeah. it was a walk in the park. It was enjoyable. And as a, uh, uh, you're good to talk to. So by all means, keep in touch with me through DMs, et cetera. And uh, to everybody else out there, I hope you're having a good day. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed the conversation because we were all yeah, over the place. We went all over the place. <laughs> I want to figure, I have to have to figure out how to title the video. So people are like, oh my God, I want to watch. Anyway, it doesn't uh, matter. Solving the world's uh, problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With Jordan. Jordan has all the answers, bro. Uh, thank you. Thanks again. See you guys, everybody. Take it easy. Have a great day. Thank you.